Welcome to the Republican Professor this afternoon. We have a very special guest. Do we ever have non-special guests? Maybe just when it's just me. We have Dr. Aaron Clark joining us. Welcome, Aaron. I'm very happy to be here, Lucas. Dr. Lucas Mather. It's great I to see you again. It's been, yeah. what, 15 years? Has it been 15 years? I don't know. Has it been that long? Good grief. It's been a long time. I love that I'm talking to Dr. Aaron Clark right now. It's been a long time. We had epistemology together. We had metaphysics, probably, right. probably philosophy of mind. And then you went on and got a PhD in philosophy from the University of Street Lewis. <laughs> That's right. There were lots of streets there. Um, which so I've always a, thought is a strange name for a, I thought it was a strange name for a university. I, I, I Lots of I, jaywalkers. I bet I, I made a comment about it one time and the person said it's a Catholic school as if that explained it. It is uh, the first Street Jesuit Lewis. university on the Western side of the Mississippi, I believe. Yeah. First. No, that doesn't surprise me. All right. So you went to a Je you're Jesuit trained, but you, mm -hmm. before that you were in South America. I mean, you're like That's a right. man for all seasons. You're like a James Bond. There's only two seasons in South America, but uh, they're very different. I lived in the Amazon region, which has 90 wow. degree winters. And I was constantly wet. Oh Even after I dried myself, I was wet within a second. Wow. And it was, it was amazing. And I met, I met my wife there. Oh, that's so awesome. I got married in Brazil. That was interesting by a judge. Yeah. They, they do it a little differently. They want it very uh, civil. <laughs> All marriages should be civil, right? No, they they wanted uh, they want you to be married by a judge, and then they put your name in a paper to make sure you're not married to somebody else. So, the uh, if you want a religious wedding, that has to be done on your own accord. But they want you in in front of a judge of the state. So hmm. That was interesting. And are you under <laughs> oath when you take your vow? Then, yes, you have to sign things, and they're in a the judge is in a robe and. So you could be, you could actually commit a crime when you're, you're, uh, yeah, you can, you, and that's you why they perjure you yourself. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's, but that's I, I didn't, different. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, was your wife the same age as you or no, she's four years, four years younger than I am. How old yeah. were you when you got married? see this was 2006 19 I just i don't think about my age very often i forget how old i am uh <laughs> let's see so i turned so i must have been 31 when i got okay married. so she was she was about 26 she was going Something into like, her late 20s okay yeah that's right she was going to turn 27 because we were married on the 30th of june and her birthday is july 31st so okay to be 27 and yeah. uh you guys are still married today we are. We're married and we have six kids and it's always, this is the quietest my house has been in a very long time. Praise God. Yeah. It's surreal. I, I'm enjoying it. They're all, I, I, I'm sorry to spoil it for you. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, okay. it's, it's nice to. I see a Bible behind you. I see books. I, I see, I think a looks like a monk or something a statue of a monk. <laughs> yeah i don't know what that guy is i found a him saint. at goodwill but i a like street 
he had a hood and he was reading and probably chanting. That's is what that, I is that Street Lewis? I, is the guy that, <laughs> is that the guy that no. the oh no, who is that? That guy hold I think that's Saint Anthony of Padua, one of the desert fathers. Oh. Is that who Padua is named after? The the university no, I in think Italy? It, it that's a good question. Well, actually, might, no, that doesn't it make. It might any be sense. just named, named after the city. Yeah, that wouldn't think. make any sense because the, yeah. that that implies the place exists. Well, we're we're being boring to some people, but you know what? There there are a select group of people that are not bored right now listening to this because they know us, or they're just you can't talk to Lucas me. without banter. You can't talk yeah. to Mister Mather, Doctor well, Mather, without. They hear that you got a PhD in philosophy, and they're wondering, okay, what's there's going to be something that's some value bomb that's dropped here. So, and I guarantee you there's lots, you've been teaching philosophy for a long time. How many years have you been teaching? I, my, you know, I taught a little bit, uh, Doug Guyvet, let me teach a couple of his classes or a week of his classes. Cool. That was my first, he, you know, I kind of shoved me into teaching and that was an uh, I think advanced epistemology class and I loved it. And then when I, uh, at St. Louis university, um, I also went to St. Louis University, not just Street Louis, but okay. St. Louis University. They had to teach. Yeah, some people say it that way. That's right. Um, they I call my I call there. my doctor drive. You know, <laughs> it makes perfect sense. <laughs> Street and drive. I don't get that. So I, they they have you teach there, and I so I I I entered the program in 2009 and started teaching 2010. That was part of the deal. If you if they pay your tuition you teach there. And I loved it. And I love, I still love teaching. Uh, and it was, it was, um, I had good experiences seeing, I felt like, and you've, I'm sure you've experienced this probably every classroom and, and you're very effective at this, but I saw just saying little things that are, that should be obvious. And it's like a, an atomic bomb goes off in the class and nobody says anything and they're just staring. And uh, I, I learned that that, hap that can happen and it's very effective and good. Uh, that I remember that probably happened at the third or fourth class session of my first class. You're not and talking I, about the Doug Guyvet epistemology classes at this no, point. No, this, this is at St. Louis University. St. Louis, I think okay. the, the thought was that not all religions can be true because they contradict each other. And that it seemed like that not, had not occurred to many people or they just never really had thought thought about that but i just remember like the blank stares and they're going and i remember hearing something like oh yeah or something like that and i thought this is for me i got to keep doing this <laughs> so, how can how can you not do it do it when well the pay is really bad but when you have yeah. that kind of sociological fact in front of you how can you not do it it's like somebody else is going to do it and they're going to screw. Apparently they're already screwing it up. And you know what? They, when that happens, there's gratitude. And yeah, and I'm sure you've experienced this too. Uh, they thank, they thank me. I mean, probably the best comments I get after my classes I, I, are things like I've never thought that way before. I never seen the world that way before. And that's, that's a really good feeling that they, they, that someone has taken it seriously and expanded the way and, and revised the way that they've seen the world. What, what was the name happen? of that class? Do you, do you remember? 
it was just an intro to philosophy class. And I think we were discussing, mm-hmm. we were discussing Xenophanes, the pre-Socratic Xenophanes, because he criticized the Greek religious beliefs. Mm. He, he said that uh, the Greek gods couldn't really be God because they lie and cheat and do stuff like that. And they, the, the, my students took offense at that almost, that someone would criticize somebody else's religion. Wow. And then I just asked them questions like, well, can all religions be true? Right. You know, and they, we got to the idea that they contradict, and then they just stopped and thought about it. <laughs> and it was, it was, there was silence for a few seconds. It was. Do they not know what a contradiction is? <laughs> they, uh, they, yeah, it, you know, that's a good question. I think they did. Um, maybe I had to illustrate or I think I had to illustrate, uh, but they, they understood. I mean, that's a fundamental, we can't think without employing the notion of contradiction, right? We just, I I agree. (laughs) Um, it it does help to be able to define it. It uh, does. Yeah. And to do it on the fly with no notes as if it's second nature. And I don't think that many people at least that i teach can do that they they do need some training on that at least that's my experience and in my experience of being mentored in high school i was Mm -hmm. mentored by dr gordon r lewis who taught philosophy and theology at denver seminary for 40 years uh, phd in philosophy from Syracuse. And I met with him once a week, my senior year of high school, along with my friend, Robbie Blanks, who Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to have on this podcast came on. He's a missionary in Africa now teaches philosophy in Africa. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually it's uh, he's, he's based in Pennsylvania, but lots of experience in Africa. Anyway, um, Gordon Lewis spent, a lot of time making sure that we could ex, ex, uh, define terms that we're using. And I remember he really drilled in what the definition of a contradiction was. And he was like, affirming the same thing at the same time and mm. in the same sense, mm. uh, affirming and denying the same thing at the same time and in the same, same time sense. and in the same yep that's right in the same respect and um, do you find do you find that when you define it and you explain yeah. it or give an example they see it right away they know what that is yeah. and they know that that's right that's it needs no f- other further explanation or proof that it's bad mm-hmm. um you can't think without you can't you can't communicate without it that's right i mean think about just the scheduling for our time together if I would have said, I'd like to meet at, at four o'clock uh, PM on uh, June 9th. Um, but at the same time, I'd also not like to meet that time. Let's not right. do it at that time. And I mean the yeah, same thing. Great, by those It's orders. a good example. And those sorts of examples are really helpful. So I give, mm-hmm. I give one like that. I say, suppose you go to a doctor and you're sick and you need to you need to receive some sort of treatment. And the doctor says, you need to take this red pill in the morning. And also you need to not take this red pill in the morning. Right. I mean, would you, what would you think? Of a, you would think either a doctor joking with you 
<laughs> or and also there's something wrong. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I or or you wouldn't get on a, something wrong with them. You wouldn't want to get on an airplane who uh, with a mechanic who thought like that. Right. So we don't. We the, the it's airplane is safe. Obvious. Right. But what it's I something mean by safe is not safe. In more, you know, cases so familiar and so numerous that that uh, we can't count them all or think of them all. But for some reason, when it comes to things like morality and religion, <laughs> that it's like completely off the table. And to say that something is true yeah. and that two things that one which denies the other in the same right. sense can be true. And, and to say that that's the problem uh, either makes people angry or throws them into a confusion. It's, it's amazing. And um, how does, for, for someone who's listening to this in the future, how, how does Christianity contradict Hinduism? Just take, take, in, take that okay. for example. Well, for, for one thing, and I'd say one of the most important ways is that in Hinduism, the, the supreme being uh, is not personal, is not, doesn't know and love. Um, secondly, that in Hinduism, the supreme being is not a creator. It, it, uh, they are what are called pantheists, pan meaning all, everything is God. So uh, at least in some forms of Hinduism, now in Hinduism, you have different kinds. There are polytheistic kinds of Hinduism, but the meaning many gods, but those many gods are often understood as manifestations of the so supreme the, being called Brahman. So Christianity and Hinduism can't be the same thing ultimately because Christianity, well, because, because the contradiction is yeah. God can't be personal and not personal yeah. at That's the right. same time. And in the same respect, Christianity says God is personal. In fact, God is tri-personal. That's because right. Because of the Trinity um, and creator, right? God, God can't be creator of the world and not creator of the world at the same time and in the same respect. That's right. And I can see how if you're an American student and you've never really thought deeply beyond bumper stickers of coexist or whatever, that that would be like mind blowing. <laughs> mind blown. It's, 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 it's really, so basic, though. it is. And, and it's amazing to me. There's something that I've come to call the despair of truth. And it's this, it's what we're talking about. This idea, I, I call it a despair, not because people feel bad about it. And it, quite the contrary, they feel very good about it. It's, it's a sanguine, they're very sanguine about the idea that there's no truth. And I've run into this a lot. And I'll just give an example. So I give us, I taught uh, uh, world religions. And at the end of the course, I ask, I'll even let them do an anonymous survey. Is there such a thing as a true religion? And not one of them says there is. They'll say, I'm a Catholic or I'm a evangelical or I'm a, what a, I'm a Buddhist. I've had every religion, you know, all of the religions named in the survey, mm -hmm. but they say there's not a true religion. Yeah. Now that's, Maybe they think you just can't know, but what they're, they're using the language of truth. Right. Uh, and, and that's another problem. I think I, I'm yeah. sure you've run into this before. There's, there's a confusion between saying something is real and saying that we can know it. 
right? They, they, they will, I remember having in a, at the, at St. Louis university, having a conversation with a student saying that, uh, well, we can't know that whether there's a God, so there isn't a God. That was her inference, right? Right. So that's, that's there, there are these basic, uh, concepts that we use contradiction, truth, knowledge, so basic. We can't, as you said, we can't communicate without using them, right. without pre- without employing them. Yeah. And, and so they know it. They know the concepts because they use it all the time. But right. somehow when it gets to morality and religion, the concepts are out the window and they'll say things like my reality and my truth. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, it, it, it really is. And it is interesting. I, I wonder what, is there a sort of shame? Uh, is there a fear? Of- I think so. Of, in, of saying out in the open, but even to themselves now is, I mean, there, there could be lots of different That's motives, but I, I wonder what, wonder what the motives are there. There seems to be at least publicly a, current, a kind of embarrassment or a, sure. de- a desire to avoid any sort of conflict. But then those who internalize this confusion, uh, what is, what is the motive there? Is it just becomes such an ingrained habit? I think that's it that they can't uh that you know they've told themselves over and over again it's a bad habit i think yeah. it's a bad it's habit a really but bad it's all, habit. it's it's probably mixed in with some fear and some desire to to get along to to be a part of whatever social group they think they're being a part of <laughs> mm-hmm. um the pressure to conform is quite high for yes. people um academics fall prey to this just like everybody else Um, it's true and um i think you can explain a lot of the problems on campus just by pointing that out that there's a there's a tremendous pressure to conform and if if it's really bad there's tremendous pressure to pretend it's not bad um what I, what I do that gets through to them is I say, well, if there's no truth about that, there's no truth about what an A looks like on paper. Um, I spell it like this. It looks like a D. Um, and that's what I mean by that is an A. And I think right. you got an A on it. Yeah. And they'll they'll say, the, no, that's yeah. not, that's a D. Right. And I say, you're, you're telling me that that's somewhere it hurts. an a and not an a at the same time is that what you're saying you all of a sudden discover the basic truth again that that um i, I and then i i reassure them that no no it really is an a okay. i that's how i pronounce that letter and that's how i draw it it's that's my truth <laughs> but no it's not that truth Oh, so there's the truth again. Okay, now, great, wonderful. Welcome back. You know, you would have gotten an A, a real one, if you would have just let that sink in. Just be comfortable. Start getting comfortable with that. Why do you Why do you only get comfortable with that when you personally feel threatened? I mean, it's that not everything revolves around you. Yeah. You know, it's kind of narcissistic, actually. Do you think that there is a kind of i don't know if i would say empiricism uh, an over emphasis on the senses and not reason 
I'm sure that's there, but I'm, I'm wondering if that is part of this. Like, as soon as you're talking about morality, you're not, you can't quantify it or, or, you know, you can't point to it. Well, they don't quantify uh, things anyway. I mean, the, the closest yes. that they come to quantifying things is when they're filling up their gas tank and they're having a heart attack when they see the digital number increasing to the extent that it is. But even then, they still can't quantify, they still can't make the connections with, with uh, who was voted in for, to office and whether the professor warned them of this or not without someone reminding of them. So I think it, it, there's, there's, um, there's a key role that you're playing in the classroom and that is to remind them to, of what they already know i agree with that wholeheartedly yeah i find myself mostly doing that uh, uh using familiar examples things that everybody can uh you know things from family i often use talk about my kids but talk about uh talk about the students in the context of their families and normal things that they would have growing up and I th I think that's you know they see the 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 topics that we're talking about in that context and they're just they're ready to affirm it like that they're ready to to uh, say yes that's a basic I couldn't think otherwise right um, but when it gets to morality and religion in particular you know often the thing I hear is well so many people disagree so it's there's this idea that if you disagree that's that somehow implies that you can't know it or you can't reason about it. Yeah, but they don't really believe that. And the reason I know that is because if I, I just asked them a thought experiment, you know, and you do the same thing, I'm sure. If everybody happened to agree besides you that enslaving you would be the best thing for our public safety, um, would that make it the right thing? Is that enough to make slavery right? Right. And of course, they would say no, 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 no. That's not what makes it right. It's not agreement that makes something right or wrong. And they know that they do know that they just need to be. They already. That's mm. what I'm saying is I never saw. Before I started teaching, I never knew that so much of my work would be our work would be reminding people of what they already know and just holding their feet to the no no don't lose the thought keep thinking right, right. about it you need to have this habit in your mind <laughs> yeah and it's amazing how much we, it's amazing to me how much we need to do that uh it is amazing okay, i guess Aaron, I, let, let's I, uh let's let's um Let's tell some people about you. I mean, we've already gotten the sense that you're, you're, uh, are you bilingual? Did you? I'm almost trilingual, perhaps cool. quadrilingual. I don't know. Are I you know still working. On I English? speak, which one I, I, yeah, uh, that's the one I need the most help <laughs> with. Uh, I speak Portuguese almost fluently. Probably oh. my wife would cut me down to size a little bit if oh, she heard yeah. me, but, but she's not here. Um, 
I speak a little bit of Spanish. I used to speak Spanish better, but then I learned Portuguese and it's so close in some ways yeah. that my Spanish just turns into Portuguese when I try to speak it. <laughs> and then funny. I can read, I can read some Latin. I can read, uh, I can read Thomas Aquinas's Latin and the Vulgate. Wow. Another, and when I try to read Augustine's Latin, I get, I feel like I feel scared, <laughs> lost, but I just uh -huh. need to practice. Yeah. Okay. And that's it. I can say thank you in a, a bunch of different languages. I think that's probably a good word to know in many languages. And so when you, where do you live now? Do you still I live, live in, in Ohio, near Cincinnati, a little bit above Cincinnati. And I like it here a lot. Um, I did what live in Wisconsin. What do you Wisconsin. like about it? Well, I just like the atmosphere. I like, uh, I feel like, I, I feel like I'm free to do good things, <laughs> like breathe without something over my face. You're free to and do I know, I know. things. Wow. Yeah. And uh, protect my family and things like that. And um, people, people are very friendly and like to be helpful around here. I remember when I moved to LA, I tried to, I mean, it was a stupid idea, but I tried to bake cookies for my neighbor when I moved down to go to Biola and the cookies weren't good, but I don't think they, you know, they even knew that because they probably didn't try them, but it just, it was very unfriendly where I was. And uh, here it's, it's very different. I, I, I'm not saying everybody in California is like that. Of course, yeah. I just, that was my experience in LA. There was kind of a like, why do you even want to talk to me? So, sort yeah. of thing in the neighborhood. And here, um, you know, my neighbors always giving my kids candy and it's, and people are, it was like that in St. Louis when I lived in St. Louis too, there would be block parties. And stuff. I suppose it depends on the neighborhood, but we live in a, uh, a very kind of free, happy, people want to just do their own thing and help other people if they can sort of neighborhood, I guess, or region of the, of the state. So I want to, I would, I would like to stay here. Wow. That's a high compliment for that area. Yeah. What's the town called? It's called Loveland, but it's yeah. Loveland, Ohio. It's about 15 minutes North of Cincinnati. Oh. So Cincinnati kind of dips down and the Ohio river dips up. And then uh, I'm about 20 minutes away from Kentucky. Oh, wow. And that's I'm teaching at Northern Kentucky University right now online. Enrollment's just tanked in the last uh, couple semesters. So, so it's the river. Is work. it the river that separates Kentucky from Ohio? Here, Remind yes, me. Yeah, okay. That's right. The Ohio River. That's right. I've read books, uh, fiction about it. Like, you know, Louis L'Amour wrote a book called How the West Was Won. And I think it, it's a lot of it takes place right, right around there. Yeah, um, it's a beautiful too. It's very hilly, very green, lush during the summer. The winters uh, aren't too bad. I lived up in Wisconsin and now it snowed at the end of May. And my wife, who's from the Amazon region, was begging me hmm. to get to get out of Wisconsin. Why do so people live in Wisconsin then? I don't know. They they, they what's like, good about it? What do they like they about like, it? Like I don't know. I <laughs> is it cheap to live it was friendly it's it's i don't it doesn't seem very different than uh where i live now maybe it's a little bit more expensive are people um, nicer people are nice there there i met i made some very good friendships there people are very nice where i was um 
where were you teaching up there? I was actually a headmaster at a, a Catholic high school for oh, a cool. year. And then I went back into uh, higher ed. I liked teaching higher ed. Although the, the students I had, the high school students I had, I taught them philosophy and theology. They loved it. And they were very sharp too. I, I would say if I, if I would compare, I was, I was a little bit surprised. Maybe I shouldn't have been, but they were sharper than most of my college students. They were just ready. I don't know if it was an attitude. I think it was kind of, it was part of it was an attitude of just openness to learning something. Mm. They were without any pragmatic, you know, they're, they're there. It's not like they're, they, uh, um, they're trying to get, they're there because they have to be there, but they're also, they're not just trying to get a grade to get a degree. They're in this sort of, you're talking about the they're high at school age kids. where they're starting to just ask uh, serious questions and they just seemed like sponges. It was amazing. High school kids, high school. Yeah. Freshmen, almost all of them were freshmen. Wow. Yeah. And they were, they were sharp. Um, but I went and then I taught at Concordia. I, I could still teach there online, but Concordia university, Wisconsin, Angus Manuj is the chair there. And, uh, he wrote a. Uh, yeah, I've heard of that name. I don't know him. He wrote a review of the first, my first publication, a chapter in a book by Scott Smith. You remember Scott Smith? Sure. Of course. Uh, Naturalism and our knowledge of reality. And, and so he happened to be in Wisconsin. And so when I left uh, my headmastership, I, I started teaching there because we kind of had a rapport already. And that was good. And then I moved here a, a couple of years ago, mainly to get my children to a school uh, that I thought would be good for them. You knew of the school before you moved? I knew of the school, yeah. And um, wow. what's, what's the school, do you mind saying? It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a parish school. There's a parish here, Immaculate Conception Church, and they just had Immaculate Conception Academy. But I had a rapport with this priest there. But we came down here to, uh, to do that, and I was going to do some online stuff for them. And it fell through. Um, I, my life has been kind of a series of good things are, uh, professionally are starting to happen and then they just fall through. Um, and I've just, yeah. I've learned it's, and I'm going to just speak frankly, it's been, it's been painful. There have times have been <laughs> acutely painful, seriously yeah. painful, existentially painful. Amen. And I'm really glad this has happened because I don't think I'd be the person I am today if I didn't have all these constant disappointments. Because I, that might sound funny, uh, but I've really learned that, you know, to, to get just a different perspective on this life, mm. that um, what really counts and what, and there, there are other things that are going on that I'm, I feel uh, free to speak about. My wife's just has been seriously ill for our, the entire, entirety of our marriage, so sick that she spent months at a time in a hospital and then even had to spend an entire summer in her, in her country. So I was a, basically a single parent. I've been a single parent just for that reason, not because there was marital problems or anything like that. So just lots of those sorts of difficult difficulties. And I mean, there've been times we've been just hanging by a string financially, something always comes through. But my point in saying all wow. of this is that uh, wow. it's helped 
It's helped me see what kind of person I want to be and, and try and then in a way easier to become that kind of person, because what really counts to me are, is my family and, and being, and, uh, creating an atmosphere with my wife and my children where we're growing in virtue and holiness. And I see it in my children and I, and I can't be thankful enough to see my children, uh, being wise beyond their years, beyond, I mean, in comparison to many children that I see, and I'm I'm not boasting. I mean, I pray for them all the time. (laughs) Uh, And I pray for myself because I make mistake after mistake. Uh, Even if you were boasting, it would be perfectly understandable. My children, they're so good hearted. They they love purity. They love modesty. um, They love wisdom. And, and sometimes they say things that, uh, they they teach me a lot. They'll say things. They'll I will be talking about something like philosophical or theological, and they'll say things that boy I never even thought of that, and it clarifies you know my own thinking. And what are the ages? I don't think, and I and I don't think that it would be. I don't think we would have this atmosphere if we didn't need to pull together all the time and pray together all the time, and 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 talk together all the time. If I was out, you know. So, what are their ages? So I have two girls, 13, she's going to be 14 here in August. And then one's going to turn 12 next week, I think. No, in a couple of weeks. Then I have a son, eight, a, uh, another son, seven, a daughter, five now, and a son, three. And we just discovered he's autistic. He's really interesting. He gets up in the middle of the night and likes to open the freezer doors and pretend he's sneezing and all all sorts of interesting things like jumping into the bathtub without getting his clothes off. And he's, he, uh, he's added a lot of color to our household. Wow. Yeah. I can't, I'm sorry if you don't mind me getting personal. It's just what the thing, uh, uh, it's something that's always on my mind. I'm just marvel. I marvel at the things that have transpired my goals in getting a, a PhD in philosophy. And and the things that have happened since then, um, I'm still I I I'm to the point where I have to look for other work. I have to get out of academia. Hmm. I just can't sustain. I can't support my family. But I but I want to teach. So I'm glad. You know, I'm glad that I have my feet in different institutions teaching online because I can still do do that. But right now, I'm I'm just looking outside of academia for stable. Gotcha. Work. I hope it's okay that I just all of a sudden get personal. Well, we, no, we'll it's, edit most of it out. Probably we'll we'll edit it. It'll just basically be me and you saying hi, and then at the end we'll be like, "Well, great to great to hear from you." And there'll be some stuff in the middle about you having a gun somewhere that we missed. Well, but, that, that's um, important. At least we should. Do you have that. Do you have a gun? I have four guns. I just wanted a different. I wanted a variety. <laughs> I, I do. I, I started, I've been, you know, ever since I was 20, no, I was, no, I must've been 16. I went, I didn't grow up with guns, but I went skeet shooting. Yeah. I was going to ask you, did you grow up with them? Where did you grow up? up, I grew up in uh, California. I was born in Colorado, lived there till I was five up in the Rockies, up in Fort Collins. You know where Fort Collins is. I do. I'm a Colorado boy. Right. I thought so. And And where where did you grow up in California? In Santa Cruz County. Oh, I'm so sorry. In a small beach town called Aptos. Yeah. 
So I was always out in the forest as a kid, um, but I didn't grow up. My, my parents didn't own guns. We didn't even speak about it. I didn't really even think about it except for the toy guns that I had. Maybe. Oh. But I was 16 and I, I went, my friend had a 12 gauge and we yeah. went and shot clay pigeons and I loved it. Sweet. And I thought to myself, I want to get a gun. <laughs> and I, someday I want to get a gun. But then yeah. after I got married, so I didn't get a gun until after I got married. Um, then I was thinking about That's a my long family. time to wait. And it's not, it was a long time to wait. I just never, it's one of those things. There's lots of things that stay in the back of my mind. And then there's a, an event that re, that makes me think of it. And, and I think I better do this now. In any, in any case, uh, once I had a family and we were living in the city in Milwaukee, I thought I should have uh, protection for my, my, my family. So I got a handgun and then I thought, well, a shotgun's a, oh no, no, right. No, before I got the handgun, someone, some, someone from the school, I was a headmaster at, they liked me a lot mm -hmm. and they just, they just out of the blue, got me a 12 gauge. Praise God. And gave one to me. So I had that. But I wanted a handgun also. Democrats and then want I to wanted make to... that a crime. What just what you just said? They it's not a crime, but they want to make it a crime. What you what you just said? To to have a shotgun and a handgun? No, to well, they probably would want to make that a crime too. But that's hard to prove the the transfer of the weapon from one person to another. Yeah, yeah. In terms of a that's gift, right? Yeah, uh, and that's very common. It's been common throughout American history. And our proud heritage of firearm ownership, um, and uh, Democrats are uh, intent on criminalizing innocent conduct, and uh, under the guise of public safety. Well, they're um, going to have to go little by little like that, like little things like transfer. Yeah, that's what they do. Uh, it's it's a crime now to do that in California. Okay. Yeah, um, this was in Wisconsin. In yeah, fact, yeah. it's a crime to loan your gun to somebody else without going through a uh, <laughs> background check and having somebody hold it for 10 days. I mean, it used to be that, you know, you could borrow somebody's gun to go hunting. It was not a big deal. Right. Um, not a big deal at all. And Democrats want to get the administrative state and the police into everything. They want to bureaucratize bureaucratize everything they want to make everything expensive of course it takes it costs money to loan a gun to somebody else it costs money because somebody has to pay for that and uh it, it's just it's it's amazing so anyway when you're saying this part of the work we're doing on the podcast is to um just describe how ridiculous it is. I mean, it, you can either see it's ridiculous right away, or if you, you can't, if you can't, then um, probably you've been intellectually molested by Democrats since you were like five and you've never had any healing. There's never been any intellectual healing or moral healing or spiritual healing. It's like the, the kids that we have that don't know what a contradiction, they do know what a contradiction is, but, yeah. but they don't, uh, they've never had something intellectually acceptable to speak like that or think about yeah. it. So what kind of 12 gauge did you get? Was it used? Was it was it a Remington, uh, a Remington's eight, is it's eight seventy? Uh -huh. That's is, right. is it a hunting one or is it a self-defense one? 
Well, I got it for, I wanted it for self-defense. He gave it to me and I thought this will be my, this will be my home. What color is it? It's all black. Okay. Yeah. It's a, that's a self-defense one. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can Uh, use a hunting one for, and it's a, it's a pump. Yeah. It's Remington 70. Um, and then I got, and then I wanted to teach my children how to shoot. Praise God. So I got a 22. Oh, and they, I love 22s. A little, uh, Smith was no, 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 Ruger. It was a Ruger 22. It's a rifle. Uh, Semi automatic. Yeah. Yeah. And they love it. So they, awesome. So there's a range right now down the street. And my, and my second daughter, she, she loved it. She would always want to go. Oh, man. That's awesome. And then, and then I got another one just because I wanted it. Is it a 1022? (laughs) It's a 1022. Yep. Yeah. No, I got, so I got that. I got that for mainly for my children, but I like it too. It's a lot of fun. And then my wife, I took my wife on a date to the range and she, I didn't have the 22 or maybe I didn't bring it with me. So she, I have a nine millimeter. So she shot that and she, it scared her. So she's, so she said, yeah. give me, let's start, start me with, start a, with a 22. Yeah. It, she just didn't expect the recoil. She loved it. She said, I love it, but I need to start a little bit what, lower. What kind of nine millimeter do you have? It's I have to ask this 43 X a glock okay so it's a small one yeah it's a it's i don't know if it's called uh well there's compact that's first concealed carry and there's semi-compact that it's um it's a 43x yeah that's really small it's basically a 43 with a longer uh handle okay the slides you the slides are interchangeable how many rounds does it fit in the in the magazine it's got it 10 well now they made a 15 round magazine but oh really yeah, for I, that Oh yeah, a ten round. Okay, so it's I think it's smaller than a Glock twenty six. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's for concealed carry. It's re. It's a recent addition to their line. Yeah, I think it came out three years ago, four years ago. And since it's so small and it is a nine millimeter, it's probably pretty snappy. Yes, it's it's got great reviews. I like it. Just fit my hand. That's why I got it. It Well, yeah. I can understand though, if you're a new shooter, uh, you might find that to be a little snappy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you got the nine millimeter, you got the 12, you got the 22. What else? What's the fourth one? Can you guess? I'm going to say it's an M60 Rambo fully automatic with a grenade launcher. And it's got a tank and an F60. You are amazing. You are amazing. No, it's just, it's a, it's an AR. I got an AR. Praise God. And, and I like, that's a lot of fun too. That's awesome. That's so that's a really well-rounded collection that you have. That's, that's wonderful for your kids to grow up around that and to yeah. not be they scared know the four, of it, but to respect very, it. Yeah. They know the four laws they'll recite. If I ask, what are the four rules of, of handgun safety? They'll, they'll spit them out. So, and they're, they're very careful and they, you know, I would go very slow when I take them to the range. I'd go very, very slow and turn things, you know, turn it over here. Look, here's the magazine. Look, you know, oh. go very step by step. Yes. And it's, and they, lo- they loved it and they would do it. They would go very slow and it was good. I mean, learning anything, going, going slow and doing it right. And then yep. once you do it right, p- picking, speeding it up a little bit. And, and be to be uh, introduced to the proper use of that tool mm-hmm. at such a young age and have it imprinted in your being as not something to be scared of in itself 
but to respect it and to understand what it's for. There's something right. that's very serious that it's for. It can also yeah. be fun if you observe the right protocols, which have to be taken very seriously. Mm-hmm. All as background conditions for having fun, but but also just to have the confidence that this is a quite quite a wonderful, powerful tool for a certain purpose to keep scary things away. And there are people that want to take that right away from you. And that's the next step of their training so that they understand that whole thing. And they're probably going to get it. Uh, if they're, if they're related to you, they're going to get a, a good, good training in that. Yeah, they're, they, so I have a safe, it has my thumbprint. I'm the only one that can access it right now. Uh, but my, one of my daughters has expressed interest in once she's feels comfortable being able to, to access it. If like my wife and I were out on a date or something like that, uh-huh. uh, but um, they're not overly curious. They're, they're not, you know, they know it's there and they know what it's for. And yeah. The, the same thing. Really I grew up with. I grew up with guns. I grew up with guns in the house. Um, I, I, there were strict rules uh, on the access to the firearms, but I could have had access to them if I if there was an emergency situation, and I could have used them in self defense. Yeah. That was the kind of household we grew up in, and so it's it's just a joy to hear your you're passing that tradition on. And that's a, that's a long tradition and you are very schmat and you have a PhD and you're doing this. That's pretty cool. It's cool that your kids, your kids are lucky because they're growing up with a PhD in philosophy as their dad. They have somebody trained in the Western tradition of great books, but also knows, like I just asked you a random question about Hinduism and you went right immediately to it. So it's not like that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you know the Western tradition, you're going to have to inter- interact with stuff like Hinduism. Yes. Uh, I mean, my, and my, da- my daughters that. are very curious. My, my sons are too, but my daughters are older and they ask lots of questions cool. about that, about religion and different worldviews. So we discuss it quite frequently, actually, at the dinner table another that's awesome what what kind of uh courses have you taught how many courses have you taught and what what are they called so i can go by subject matter a kind of course so i've taught i started out teaching just intro um but now i teach i've taught west what's something called western worldview and that's the way i teach i like to teach intro somewhat historically to see how a certain and trace certain themes throughout Western history, philosophical themes, and see how they developed and changed or were criticized and so forth. So I guess I can lump all of that into introduction of philosophy and uh, worldview, but I've taught uh, introduction to ethics. I've taught medical ethics quite a bit. Uh, I taught business ethics once. I've taught environmental ethics. I've taught philosophy of the human person, which was I've done in different ways. In one way, I've fo- focused on philosophy of mind and the different views of philosophical anthropology, that is, what is the nature of a human being, in particular, whether a human being is purely material, physical, or both material and immaterial, like non-material, and or just immaterial. So those different views. Um, but I've also taught that in a different way. I've taught from a Thomistic 
point of view. When I was at St. Louis, I studied a lot of Thomas Aquinas. I got that's what I did my dissertation on, some of his thought. So that was I've my next from, question is what you did your dissertation on. Yeah. Um, but so I've also taught what else have I taught? Uh theology. I've taught Latin. Oh, cool. Taught, yeah. And I've taught I know that oh, I've taught logic and critical thinking. Oh, right now yeah. I'm teaching a lot of logic, and I really like teaching logic mm, a me lot. Too. Me too. Uh so that's what's your what method? I'm... What's your method for teaching logic? What do you use? Well, uh what do you start with? What do you I don't know if I'm totally happy with it, but <laughs> lately I've been uh the reason is is because I teach online and there's a there's a few con I'm using a textbook that in that enables them to have exercises. I feel like if you're mm -hmm. going to teach logic like yeah. Latin or any language, you need to be frequently doing mm -hmm. practice. That's uh, right. And so I, I got a text. I like the text a lot. Um, but it involves that it, it has a it has a component where they can do practice online. So that's why I'm using that. So it's uh, at the first few weeks, I'm just teaching about what I call or what has been called. I don't I call it that because only because it's been called that for a long, long time. The three acts of the mind. So there's the do first use, the first act is Peter understanding. Uh, no, but I know he he teaches that okay. as well. Okay. I just kind of grabbed stuff from Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. The three uh, acts of the mind. OK, so the first one is understanding where you where you have an awareness of an object and it over time i mean this is both developmentally and uh psychologically so the so human development i mean infants going into toddlerhood and growing up you can see this happening uh they don't have they don't have the ability to uh, have understanding at first they only have right. recognition which is right. different um and i've seen this i taught kindergarten math and I saw this over and over again. They knew the scribbles that counted, you know, this means two and this means three. It means it, but it's not. It's not it. That's not two and that's not three. And then I, you know, I'd hold up dots or macaronis or whatever we're using that day, right? Little bears, plastic bears, and put three of them. That's three. Now you can, now you can become aware of three, right? Um, there's a, re the, so what I was trying to get the, the kindergartners to do, sorry, I'm going on a tangent, but this will come back to the first act of the mind. What I was trying to get the kindergartners to do was uh, see the way Aristotle would put it, see the universal, right? See the reality of two or three or whatever the number was and not the sign. And over time, this works. I mean, they start to, they understand now when they see an equation, right. We're talking about these quantities. There's, we're talking about a part of reality we call quantity yeah. and its relationships. So I was trying to get them to have an intuition. And if this was a charter school for children who were called at risk. They're, a lot of their parents were, or their fathers were in jail. They hardly spoke English, but I, could, I saw like real progress when I, would try to, when I got them to have intuition. All I was doing was teaching math. Anyways, that's the first act. You have an intuition of a reality there that has an identity that you can recognize now when you recognize a whole bunch of different things. They have the same identity, the identity across all these particular things. So Aristotle says you recognize the universal. That's the first act. And then once you do that, you can recognize universals as having certain relationships with other universals.
and you can form the second act of the mind, which is called judgment. Sometimes it's called inclusion, uh, or I'm sorry, composition and division. So if you have the concept apple, if you have an understanding of apple and you have the understanding of red, you see that those can belong together. And certain concepts or certain understandings exclude each other. So that's the basis for judgment. And judgments are formed. Sorry, I feel like I'm giving class all of a sudden. Judgments are formed in a certain structure we call propositional structure. It has a subject and a predicate. And now you can relate things. And then that, that leads to the third act, which is argumentation or reasoning. You see relationships between judgments. Can, uh, uh, can we be aware of marriage? Yes, you can see um, marriage yeah. is a natural kind. Okay. It's a natural So in thing. terms of judgment so, and, you can and see, inclusion, would that include two men? Or uh, would that exclude the, the two universal, men? The universal marriage would not include it. Now, you can use that word, and that's what happens. People use the word for different things. So um, they will use an the analogy? word man yeah. and woman. Can you give me an analogy for what you mean by that when you say that that um that that the judgment of the universal would not include two two men? Would that the analogy be something like um that that uh, two could not be red? Two right. apples That's, could be red, uh, but not two. What would be a good analogy for that? Well, and you can, people I mean, could see that it's not based in so, hatred. So, yeah. So, uh, I mean, are you hatred? Maybe you are hate, hate, hateful. Are you hateful? I don't. I hope not. I don't. I don't feel any hatred, and I don't wish any ill on anybody. Okay. In fact, so this is not. Have you? Are you in the clan? <laughs> am I in the? Am I in the what? Are you in the, the clan? clan? The, the Kukos clan. I'm in yeah. the. No, I'm in. We have to talk. ask these questions because Pete, that's what people think as soon as they, they hear what you said. They think, oh, see. You're, well, look, are a hateful there person. is a natural. This is the way I'd like it. To, I don't hear it explained this way very much, but this is the way I think about it. You're using a word to refer to something, to signify something. Hey, red signifies a certain quality, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can use red to, you know, we can use it in different ways. So, you get really angry. And I say he was red with anger or something like that. We, we know we're using the word in a different way. That's we, that have, a, we have a convention, right? Right. Well, you can, you can do that with the word marriage. You can do that with the word man. That's it, true. it just needs to be pointed out. Yeah. Now, and I think that you're not using the way the word in the way that we have been using it. Yeah. So why, so how are you using it? That's called equivocation. That's if, you, if you don't point it yeah, out, it's, it's called, called equivocation. equivocation. Yeah. And it's a fallacy. So the question then is how and are Obergefell you committed that fallacy? <laughs> Actually, I should and say I uh, not Obergefell himself, but Justice Kennedy committed that fallacy. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. So no, I'm just saying. Uh, I think that that might maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm I'm welcome to uh, argument against it, but that may be a way to get to the heart of what's going on with language and and the idea that I'm. Uh, What's a good a man, analogy for marriage? A though? man can have women genitalia. You just, I think one of the ways to get to the heart of uh, that debate is to say, well, we've been using the word a certain way. How are you using it now? What are you referring to? Okay. Because you're not, because 
you would you can acknowledge it's just a fact of history. We've been using the word man to refer to this sort of thing. Well, I was That's talking about marriage. Oh, you were talking. Yeah, I guess I, I was, I was, I was interested in that. Well, we've well, you been know, using you, you, nailed, you nailed down the next topic, which came very close after that. As soon as that marriage thing got redefined. And that is what happened. It was redefined. Yeah. So, so in both cases, you're taking a word that's been used a certain way mm -hmm. and now they want to use it a different way. And therefore you can ask them, well, how are you using it? And why are you using it that way? Mm -hmm. Right. Because we use words for a purpose. Well, they want we you use to use it that way too. Yes, that's right. So, that, um, so then I, in the, the case the, of men, I think question, that did, wouldn't you say the further question is why do you want me to use that? That is that, that is the that is the further and uh, an essential question here, yeah. um, because, and I think if this is more clear, and maybe it's you maybe it's unique. I'm not sure, but it's more clear in the with the issue of uh, saying that now you can be a man with women genitalia. Okay, you can use the word that way, because the question you can ask is okay. Uh, what are you what are you referring to or how are you using the word and i think it turns out on inspection that they don't that there is no referent there's no there's no universal there you might say there's no single thing that's present across all cases of uses of that language and what right. i so what's going on here is they're not using language to refer to refer but to get me and everybody else to act a certain way yeah. To vote Democrat, That's, basically. And to raise a little yeah, to, to accept a certain yeah. I don't know, just come uh you know, to to go to get to uh get away from natural boundaries as much as you can. Right. Does that and, bother you? Uh, it bothers me a lot. Um I I think it's insidious. it bothers them. It bothers them when you don't do what they tell you. And I'm to not impute. I'm not saying. I'm not. Imp I wouldn't impute uh, bad motives to any particular individual unless there was evidence. I think. I think it's proper to assume the best of somebody until there's evidence to the contrary. But in general, I think there's a spirit behind this that is insidious. I think it's. I think it's. You, by spirit, I, I, I feel like I don't like have. A, I, like a devil, like a like a demon. Yeah. Yes, yes, I think that's true too. Um, but I mean, a, a spirit, a certain, um, a certain moral attitude or certain moral outlook. Now you have a PhD in philosophy. You're highly educated, and you believe demons exist. I have firsthand experiences wow. of demons. Okay. Tell I know a lot. Of, I haven't talked about this a lot to a lot of people. Okay. When I was, uh, I had kind of a troubled youth, you might say. And one facet of that was I got, when I was in did junior you do drugs, I did. Okay. Uh, until I was 20, until I had a, a conversion experience in my bedroom reading okay. the New Testament. Um, the, the reason I'm asking is, Somebody's going to wonder: Was this drug-induced experience? No, this was not. Before that, I got into the occult. Actually, 
I had a, this was when I was about 12 or 13 and a friend or someone at school was really into the occult and he, I was really interested in that. Uh, and I got into it too. Can you explain and there were, what they, that means? That word, how you're using we, it? A, the word occult means hidden things basically. But he, the way he talked about it was he was, he would practice white magic. Uh, and so I read. Was he in the clam? He, no. I had black to, white magic was supposed to be benign and benevolent use of these. It consisted in rituals with candles and uh, certain spells and incantations and so forth, and involved things like what is called astral projection. The idea of which is your soul travels to a different dimension. Whatever that was the explanation. But we did these practices. And I had a number of terrifying experiences that uh, one of them, the most frightening one, and the reason why I said I don't want to have anything to do with this, is we were in his house alone doing practicing this uh, astral projection. No one is around, no pets, nothing. We're just, this is an aptos and we're, and anyways, I'll make this story short. Uh, We were, you know, supposed to be in this um, burning candles incantation, trying to get into this kind of meditative state. And then he got really afraid and he said, we need to stop this. We're being attacked. What, what age are you at this time? I'm, tw- I'm 12. That's pretty and, young. Uh, that, I, yes. I was picturing you at like 16 or something. No, I was 12. Um, my parents divorced when I was nine and I just was off on my own a lot, getting into various kinds of trouble. Um, and the, the door was vi- started violently shaking. Like someone was pounding on it. It started like this. And then it just, it just, it, it, it grew and grew. And I was, I mean, I was, I thought this, I got it. And we were in a room, like a, a closed room. No one was there. No one else. Was, was there, there a storm? That's one experience something? of many. No, no, no. It was a sunny, calm day. It was completely quiet in his house before this. And it started up and then he did some sort of incantations and it stopped. And is I said, California is that was it an earthquake? This is Aptos, California. No. So there's no an earthquake? earthquake? No. Okay. No, this is one of many. How do you such... know it wasn't an earthquake? I because I know what an earthquake is like. And it doesn't just shake one one object. Other you objects feel were staying still. Yes. Like pictures weren't falling down. Nothing. It was just the door. And then I've seen things and uh because uh, before that, I've had other experiences. Anyways, it just well, was. How many experiences have you had? And like, what what would you say the vividness or the quality was? Like, was it as vivid as the experience you have talking to me right now? No, they no. I I mean, I I'll count among them experience with Ouija boards. I was into Ouija boards for a while, and that that thing would move. I mean, two people that had never really used it. And, is your and you memory could, of this just as clear as like your memory of other yes, events they, that they for were, sure happened? Yes, because they were frightening to me. Okay. So and it I was remember as vivid thought. as your memories of me, for example. Like oh, yes. 20 years ago oh, or yeah. whatever. Okay. Oh yes. Yes. Um, and I wasn't on any drugs any of these times. Uh, okay. 
In any case, I don't. I, I asked those I don't questions. Make not it for sound me. too interesting. I, I know. I, I asked those questions because somebody in the future is wondering those questions, and that's why I'm asking them. Because I want you to be challenged on that, and to to uh, articulate the answers to the questions that they would have. The person listening. Sure, of course. Yeah. And they're legitimate questions. I have. I, I believe you. I've had an experience myself that I don't ever talk about. And I've I don't think had, it's just one, it's, really one it's one experience that I've had that I don't ever talk about. But it's helpful to hear your experience as well. Yeah. So you believe demons exist? Yes, I didn't know what they were at the time. I didn't, I mean, I, I just thought they were evil spirits, demons, but I didn't, I wasn't at the time, uh, thinking in terms of a Christian worldview, although I had that in the back of my mind. Were you a Christian uh, at the time? No. Well, okay. I was, I had been baptized. Uh, did you but believe I didn't have in Christian demons beliefs. at the time? You know, I don't know what I believed. I was searching, uh, I'm, I couldn't, I could, in a sense, I couldn't shake Christian, certain Christian beliefs that I had, although I was willing I was willingly trying to shake them. If you were terrified, if yes. you were terrified, what did you do? What, what did I what, do then? What did you do? Because you, when once it stopped, I left. Once I stopped, I left. Yeah. I said, I'm not doing this anymore. And I, I even had wanted to have nothing to do with that, okay. that friend. I just didn't gotcha. want to be around. I wanted to get as far away from that as, as I could. Okay. Did you believe in angels? Did I probably in- did. I don't. I didn't think about it in those. Terms. Did you believe in God? I, mean, I did, but I didn't. I was trying not to. Oh, okay. Um, I don't think I. I I could never shake the belief that there was some ultimate reality beyond the material universe. I've tried, I tried, <laughs> I tried to, to be an atheist. I tried to even be agnostic and just let it at that, but I couldn't because I really wanted to know the truth about these things. There was part of me that even when I was running away, yeah. there were, there were many times uh, before the age of 20 that I would just in a moment, I would look up at the sky and I'd say, God, if you're real, show me. And then I'd go back to my stupidity uh, and partying and whatever I was doing. But there were just moments, like several of them, I remember. Did, did God ever I mean, one time I was like moving from my house and I, I was carrying a couch or something and I just caught the stars in the sky and it just prompted, I, I just looked up and said, if you're real, show me. Because I really, there was something deep inside me that wants, wants to know the truth. I mean, look, Lucas, if there's any question that's important, it's that question. I mean, there are a lot of important questions to ask. Did, did whether God exists or not? Okay, that's not an inconsequential question, yeah. right? So, it, as much as I didn't, as much as I wanted to ignore that question, I couldn't because I knew it was the most important question. Do you feel like God answered that prayer? Yes, most certainly. How did that happen? Well. I mean, I had a, I had a conversion experience in my bedroom around the age of twenty, 
that was a very, it was a very strong emotional experience. Were you living at home? Where were you? No, I wasn't living at home. I was, uh, I was living with a roommate. I was, I was going to De Anza Community College in oh. is it Cupertino, California. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of parts to this story, but anyways, well, that was the, the beginning of me. Well, so you, if you've heard some of them, you know, I would look every once in a while at a party, moving furniture, wherever. I mean, it would just happen in the weirdest moments where I just felt like everything, I had to shove everything to the side and speak out loud to the, to the sky. I don't know why I turned to the sky, but I guess that's what, you know, it draws your thoughts upward and outward beyond, right? So that's what I did. I say, if you're real, I mean, those are the words I spoke. If you're real, show me, which is an itch, which is kind of, I mean, there's a bit of irony to that, right? Because I'm speaking, I'm speaking out <laughs> as if someone will listen. So, uh, so when you say, did you believe in God? I think I did, but I was trying not to, but in these certain moments, I just like, well, I really want to know anyways. So you didn't uh, at that point, just- you didn't at, at that moment, you didn't think people in China are upside down now. And to them, I'm upside down. I'm actually not looking up at all. I'm looking down. But actually, if you think of uh, Earth just hanging there in space, how do you know which way is up and down? Actually, we don't know. It's all relative. That that didn't occur to you? And it's just space out there? No, I, I, I didn't have those thoughts. What I The thought that I had was... That's how I an atheist is listening to this. They're thinking you're crazy. <laughs> Or you're just not thinking. Why? Why is that? How is that? Uh, I'm going to be the atheist. I'm going to say, like I just said, Earth is just hanging there. And well, I mean, lots of other stuff is going. Apparently, Earth is moving. Do things just hang but, there without having been hung? That's the question I want. Well, you think it's it's up, but it, how do you know it's up? It's it well, I didn't, be I down. Did and, I say and, up? I think I said out. Look out. Out from where I am. All right. That's it. That's another. That's I was up to you. I mean, it's up to you from Uh, your perspective. It's up and and you're looking at space and you think God is in space. I don't know if I thought that it was just the inclination. I, I think part of it, uh, there's, there's so many, there's other parts in my psychology. I had dreams about the end of the world when I was three. So maybe, and they involved the stars. I did. It was weird. Maybe I don't, I can't explain why I, I shouldn't be laughing those. at that at more yeah. than one. Um, but for some reason, and my dad got me into astronomy when I was little. So maybe I just, I thought of the great, I thought of space as the great beyond or something. Did your like parents, that. were they Christians or do they believe in God? No, there was uh, my mother had a conversion when I was five. Okay. But I, uh, so I don't remember any Christianity until I was five, but my dad would mock it. So I had. Well, what was his beliefs? Different. Huh? What was his belief? He didn't. He didn't have a, a belief system. He just it was mostly negative as far as I could tell. Gotcha. He's he told me once he was an empiricist and believed in science hmm. without. I can, I can predict who he voted meant. for for president. <laughs> In any if, case, if he voted, yeah, I don't he know. voted for Jerry Brown, didn't he, for governor? He's, he's my dad's, a, my father, whom I love very much, is a, is a private man. 
Uh, but I remember him mocking Christian doctrines and beliefs when I was a kid. Do you still uh, talk? So, Do you still talk to him? Yeah, yeah. I just I talked to him. He's actually I talked to him a, a couple weeks ago when he was in the hospital. Nothing serious. Uh, Is he in California? Yeah, he's in California. He's moving to the okay. East Coast now. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of there's just there's a lot in the back of my mind that would come bubble up and just strange strange times. And then at the end, people hand me those Gideon New Testaments with the Psalms and Proverbs. Oh They're yeah, green. You know those what I'm are talking awesome. about? Those are awesome. And I and I and I because I'm just this way. I'm very curious about the the end. I wanted to read the end first, so I went straight to the Book of Revelation. And I wanted to know about the end of the world and I was wow. terrified. Yeah. And uh, then I thought I better start reading this Bible. Whoa. Uh, so I got an old and new Testament. Mm. And then I started reading. I thought I'll just read from the beginning. I'll just read the whole thing from the beginning. What, what kind of courses were you taking at this time? Did that have anything? I was to do studying with- music. I was a music me- major. I went in as a math major and a music major. But then I, d- I got really interested in the linguistics, so I switched my major to linguistics, but I stayed with all the music classes just because I love music. Uh, so that's what I that's what I was studying there. And uh, so I got where'd in. You go, where'd you go? you finish your undergrad? Then I went to San Jose State in San Jose. And I got a, a, I got a minor. That's when I discovered my love for philosophy. But I went in there as a music composition major. I wrote compositions. Um, but the teachers there were very, they liked the avant-garde sort of stuff. In fact, one of the teachers there, kind of famous for this, his name's, I think it's his real name. It's Alan Strange. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he he fit the name. He was an interesting guy. Uh, always in sweatpants. That's what I remember. Very portly, always in sweatpants. Uh, avant-garde. I, he he liked he he bragged they about having created a, he he bragged about having composed a piece of music that made someone physically vomit, and ooh, ooh. and I like that story because I I created a piece of music that was electronic, and I remember having we had to play we had to perform these or have them performed if they're electronic right uh, as a final like it was our final exam to submit comp, and I remember. I had a lot of really high, shrill, metallic noises in there. And I remember watching him wince in discomfort. And I just felt, I don't know why, but just felt like so satisfied that I had made Alan Strange wince in discomfort, who bragged about making someone vomit with his composition. But I digress. Is that really, um, is that really music then? That's a good question. Um is something that that just makes you vomit music? I don't think so. I think it's um, noise, but I don't know if it's, it's noise. Um, okay. I, I don't know. I don't really know the answer. I haven't thought about the philosophy of music. I, I, I've thought about it a bit. Um, I think we get into this. I hope this doesn't sound like trickery to anybody, but I think what we get into is this idea again that that words are are used to draw to draw joint attention to something. I word the use red. I use the word red mm-hmm. to get you to think about a certain quality, right? Yeah. And then we use the same word for other things that aren't the 
that aren't identical to the first thing. Um, and so with things like art, you know, when people talk about redefining things, well, that's a, I may, that's a may, maybe a helpful way to think about it. You're just taking a word and you're picking some other referent, mm-hmm. you know, picking up some other, th- some other thing to refer to. So that I think needs to be said when you say, is that music? Well, people use the word music for that. Is right. that the same thing that Mozart did? No. I don't think so. In any case, I was reading the Old Testament and I got very confused. Lots of ritual sacrifices and all that, the Levitical laws. I got very, you know, I was kind of just coming to this with not tons of background, a little bit of Sunday school. This is still at the community college, De Anza? This is at De Anza. Okay. And then... And then my, my, I told my mom, I think my mom had gotten me the Bible because I asked for it. And I said, this is confusing. She said, well, just read the New Testament, read the Gospels. So I did that. So I started reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in John, I believe it's in chapter 14, 13 or 14, Jesus says, for I will, I, you won't see me for a little while and then you'll see me. And it just, I read that. I mean, I'd read lots of other things. This is, I'd probably been reading the New Testament now for weeks and weeks. But for some reason, that just struck some, it struck something in me. And the exact words, I, I may have even said it aloud, but at least these were the words that formed in my mind. I thought, what have I been doing? And I just, I, I wept very strongly and uh, begged Jesus to forgive me. And then I didn't know what to do. So I just, I, re, I re, for three months, I would sit in my room and read the Bible while my friends are taking bong hits out in the living room. It was just, you know, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. Uh, I, and I started, uh, then I found some, a, a, there's a denomination called Foursquare, somebody I knew that also uh, I used to party with, but now was going to church, was going to this church. So I ended up going to this Foursquare church. I don't know if you know what that denomination is. It's kind of like Assemblies of God. It was came out of the Azusa Street revivals in the first of decade of the 20th century. Yes. I've been to uh, those churches. I've, I've attended those churches. I attended them when I was in an undergrad, in fact. So I was a part of that, and it was a startup pioneering church. So, you know, Chapel, you'd Connie show up early and put all the, put out, you would, I would put out chairs for people to sit in. We were renting a community hall or something on Sundays. And at the same time, since I'm very interested, I want to know the truth about these things. I started reading theology and just picture this. I was reading, do you know who Arthur Pink is? Uh, Very severe, austere Calvinist author. I was reading. Does he write about uh, the Holy? Does he write about? Miracle? No, I'm thinking of Walter Wink. Sorry. No. This is Arthur W. Pink. I think I, the W is right. So there's a W in there. You might Never have heard of him that. before. Anyways, he wrote stuff like, are you really saved? And are you the among the elect? And uh, that kind of Calvinist stuff. Uh, so I was reading very severe Calvinist books while going to a Pentecostal-lish sort of. And I had lots of theology questions, naturally. And they couldn't answer any of my questions. Good luck. And they told me not to even ask, basically. Yeah. 
Um, well, when you when you said what kind of building they were renting out, I was like, yeah, the, these four square denominations, they never have the beautiful buildings that have been there for 200 years. Mm-hmm. They never have that. But OK, that and that has that has, actually has a lot to do with why they can't answer your theology question. <laughs> yeah, they they their idea of uh, I mean, they would ordain anyone who had a kind of a, a fiery. Uh, disposition and know. they and, that and zealous about zealous yeah uh so you know these are very extremely different yeah. christianities sure right mm-hmm. and i say uh, they're extremely different they have a different worldview mm. i mean the one of them says jesus didn't die for everybody and that god chose some people to go to hell created some people to go to hell. That's a very different view. I, 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 in my, in my understanding, that's a different worldview than the denial of that, than the contradictory of that, or, or the contrary, at least, that Jesus died for everyone, that God did not create people to go to hell, but to, to be with him forever, right? In any case, lots of theological questions, and that's what led me to Biola, because I thought to myself, I need to figure this out for myself. I need to learn Hebrew and Greek and see what the scriptures say. I thought in their original languages, then I, then I can know what uh, the answers to these theological questions. So you had a high view of scripture. And all my questions were answered. Huh? You had a high view of scripture because you thought scripture was going to answer your question. Yes, that's right. And I still do. I still, I I believe it's the word of God, uh, divinely inspired. So what did you uh, discover when you went to Biola? Did you have the answer to your question? No, it just, it, it exacerbated the problem, actually. <laughs> okay, you're depressing uh, but anybody not a, that's like, tell me the answer, tell me what to do. Now, I, it, it's not a simple well, I, answer I, I like thought, go to Biola, so yeah, what is the answer? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. I you mean, said I said it made I, it worse. It ex- well, it exacerbated it. For me, because uh, I can, so I see that there's lots of different theologies and bodies of belief that all call themselves Christianity. And in my mind, Christianity was true, was the true religion revealed by God. And I wanted to know which of these Christianities is the Christianity. The idea that you could have contradictory beliefs under the umbrella of orthodoxy made no sense to me and still makes no sense to me. Um, so I went through different phases. I, there was a, there's a phase I went through that I'll call existential Christianity or my existential list phase where I thought what matters is that you've encountered the, the real risen Christ and the doctrinal stuff that's kind of peripheral. What matters is this existential encounter. And that lasted for a few months. And then I thought, no, that just, that's not right. Doctrine matters. Well, of course. Yeah, it does matter that you experience God, but it does, that does matter. But that needs to be spelled out and, and filled yeah, out. Yeah, how right, do you know? Because right. any, how do you people, know? Because people can have, really God. you know, uh, Mormons have what they call a burning in the bosom, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how could you know that, you know, Test the spirits. Well, how, how are you going to test the spirits? Doctrinally. Mm-hmm. Right? 
you know, and that doctrine will include truths about morals and truths about other things, like truths, metaphysical truths, you might say, truths about reality, what God is like, and so forth. So then I thought, okay, here's what matters. It's the creed. It's the historical creeds, right? The Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. That, that there is this idea in the background of, uh, uh, you know, Second primary doctrine or essential doctrine and non-essential doctrine. That was that was a framework that was kind of in the back of uh, my mind and, and around me at this time. So I thought, okay, so what's essential, the a doctrine that's essential to Christianity are the creeds. And I remember taking a, a, a historical theology class. I forget the name of the, the teacher. Gomes. But he was the one that... Alan Gomes. Uh, no, was it Alan Gomes? It was the one who rehabituated Shed. Remember that theology book? He was an editor of the the Shed New Shed theology book. I it, I think it was Alan Gomes. What's Shed stand for? That was the last name of the the author of this systematic oh. theology book that was adopted uh, by Kevin Lewis and others. Do you remember that book? No, I didn't have to take. Well, Kevin I Lewis had, used I the, had theology, theology at Denver Seminary, and so I had that okay. transferred in. Um, so there was my, Erickson. My that was the one we used yeah, first, and that's, then we that's went the to Shed. Oh, okay. In any yeah, case, Alan Gomes, I think, instrumental in, in having that edition of Shed. In any case, I did really well in that class. I remember getting, uh, there were, he gave, I remember not only acing the exams, but getting over a hundred because there was some bonus stuff. So I really, I loved that subject. But, and, and I remember my hopes were kind of like, okay, now we're going to get talking to, about the creeds and what happened in the Reformation. And I thought, okay, so, and then I discovered somebody, I don't remember who proposed this during the, the throes of the Reformation, uh, uh, I think Calvin was was in play at this time. And he said, the creeds, we just all, you know, we all need to agree on the creeds. And then Alan Gomes, I'm, I'm assuming now, I think I'm remembering too, uh, it was Alan Gomes. He said that that he, all these, the, all the different groups, the fighting groups wanted to kill him, literally. And I thought, that's crazy. I mean, I thought that would be the thing that, to unify you know, that would be Christianity. Everybody would agree that's Christianity. And the one who proposed it was having death threats and had to flee. And so I just, I thought, I don't know. I guess I just don't know. Mm. I want to be a Christian, but I don't know what the Christianity is. Yeah. Uh, and I just had to, and then, and then uh, I forget the guy's name. There were people that were testing out different non-evangelical versions of christianity like orthodoxy so one guy was he was considering becoming i guess the the label is eastern orthodox and he was sharing a little bit about that and is this he the was same bringing class? up arguments. no this course? wasn't in a class now this was just oh. among a group of friends gotcha. we'd sit at a table I'm, you probably know him i just don't remember his name keith I wasn't, it may have been keith that sounds right <laughs> yeah that sounds right and he was bringing up arguments against or not arguments, but he was talking about how do you establish the canon? Yeah. How is the canon established? Those sorts right. of questions. And I thought that's a good question. I also took a, or I listened to lectures by Dan Yin. 
Is that the right name? I'm trying to remember. He taught there for a while. He, he's yeah. now at a, uh, what's that school in Indiana? Taylor, I think. Um, okay. He had a PhD from philosophy and uh, from USC. And uh, he studied under Willard. And he did his dissertation on John Locke. That's right. Which is, oh, man, I never got to talk to him seriously about John Locke. I always wanted to that would have been. really nail down John Locke. And now it's, that's one of those things where I actually feel like I would love to do that before I die, <laughs> but I don't know what I'm going to ever Did Dan Yim about John Locke? Just, just yeah. Just try to get under my, I want to understand John Locke more. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've tried to read him. There are a few philosophers that I would love to understand and I've tried to read and it, they, the writing style feels impenetrable impenetrable to me mm -hmm. sometimes like Kant I, I I've studied yeah. Kant I've done, written stuff on Kant I've even published stuff that talks discusses Kant yeah. but I remember I tried to read Kant and for three years I think I tried to I couldn't make it through the first few pages of his because I would I would lose there were so many dang semicolons I did forgot what the subject was when yeah. I got to the the near the end of the sentence so uh anyways John Locke is not complicated like that. It's just so dry. And yeah. that, and maybe it's because he's very, I don't know what it is about John Locke. I just find it the, some of the most boring. I found Aristotle that way too. I felt like Aristotle has a sentence here and then the next sentence, and there's got to be something in, that belongs in between. And he just what, skipped it. What, at what point did you know that you wanted to do a, a PhD in philosophy? Do you recall? Oh, I, I felt that, that point way. Was? Oh yeah. Before I left Biola. Maybe okay. within the first few weeks of Biola, I loved, I loved philosophy. Was it the, the idea, love of it, or was it just uh, almost like an itch that you couldn't scratch, or what? I, I'd say it's both. I, mean, I just felt like the idea that you can think about things, the things that matter most, carefully, and arrive at the truth about those questions was to me. You, you believe than that that, that actually happens in philosophy? Yes. That you yes, have arrive at the truth? Yes. Okay. You're just reassured. Would... You just reassured a bunch of people because so far it's felt like in your journey, when you're talking about discovery, it's, it felt like there was no answer. Well, I'm not, I haven't finished yet. Yeah, I know. You obviously are against Calvinism. You. So, you know, you, you don't. I, I, I have a bit of an animus. Against Calvin. Okay. I so just, you... I agree with, I agree with St. Alphonsus Liguori who said, Calvin uttered a great blasphemy in his doctrine about God. What's his name? Alphonsus Liguori. How do you spell the last name? Uh, it's French. L-I-G-U-O-R-I. -I. Okay. Anyways. Uh, so I forget what there's different parts of the story. And now I'm trying to remember where we're at. I know we were talking. So, well, so everybody well, wanted to kill this guy. Or you asked the questions, if you would like. Uh, well, I'm interested in. I go on tangents very easily. You you had somehow St. Louis University got on your radar. What was it about that school? A friend of mine recommended that I go there because he knew I was interested. I went there with an interest in in epistemology mm -hmm. and in particular, what is called realist phenomenology and ba the basic idea of realist phenomenology. They had a slogan, 
It was an anti-Kantian slogan, and it was back to the things themselves. That was, there was a group of philosophers around the turn of the 20th century who thought we, we can get out of this, uh, you know, Cartesian skeptical bubble that De Descartes thinks he got himself out of, but nobody else, <laughs> those the philosophers who followed him uh, don't think that he got out of it. And then you get Kant who's even reverses the knowledge relationship and says, we construct objects of knowledge. We don't discover them as they are. Right. And the realist phenomenologists are totally against that. That's they're like, no, you can get to the very, you can get to the essences themselves. You can know essences. That's what, what are realist some key names in, in this? So uh, Husserl, the early Husserl, at least. And if you talk yeah. to Dallas Willard, Dallas Willard, I did talk to Dallas Willard in his office. He said, Husserl gets a bad name. Everybody says he he left that idea, but he didn't. But in any case, Husserl, Adolf Reinach, and Adolf. Uh, that would scare me. Adolf, anyway. Adolf Reinach, not okay. to be confused with other another Adolf, a German Adolf. Well, it's like and, uh, it's like Jason. There's a bunch of people named that. That's true. That's a good point. Um, and then. Dietrich von Hildebrand and was one of these. And there's some others that were part of this realist group that wanted to get away from uh, idealism because certain phenomenologists, they call it phenomenology because it has to do with your experience. You're analyzing your experience. Right. Some of them went off into an, uh, an idealist interpretation of that. Idealism is the view that objects of reality are constituted by ideas basically by men mm. by mental acts yeah and that's or, wrong right yes that's, that's wrong. wrong okay now um, hold on a sec who was at st louis that got these guys on your radar the the realist phenomenology somehow connected to st louis who was that person michael barber was one of the main and so i traveled to st louis university before i applied there and went and spoke with him. And then uh, John Greco was an epistemologist. So I thought I, he, he was he was a very big name in epistemology, still is. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd study with him. And, I, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I didn't know much about Eleanor. <laughs> no. I, I was waiting for you to say her name. Who was my was dissertation like, director and Eleanor my mentor? Stump is nowhere in this conversation, but I know you finally it, mentioned not yet. Her. I mean, there I knew she, she was there, and I, but I hadn't read. I, I hope she's not uh, going to be mad at me. Um, she's a famous she everybody. She's a famous, Thomas. famous Thomas medieval philosophy scholar at University of St. Louis. And if you were listening carefully, you heard Aaron say earlier. He did his dissertation on Thomas Aquinas, who is a medieval philosopher. So that's okay. right. All right. You know how uh, you know how graduate school goes. Things can change, right? When once you get there and you're so how did that work for you? You got right? there. Well, you got there and I, what changed and when? How did you how did that happen? Here's the thing. I thought in order to do epistemology, I, I thought anytime you're making a claim, whether it's in a in the area of epistemology or ethics or in any in any area of philosophy, you're presupposing something about reality. You're presupposing what's called metaphysics. Metaphysics is the area of philosophy that deals with 
what is real, what it means to be real, what exists and so forth. So you're presupposing certain metaphysical claims. So I wanted to get to the metaphysics. I kind of wanted to do the metaphysics of epistemology, something like that. And I thought realist phenomenology is doing that because it's describing the essences. But when I uh, studied contemporary metaphysics, I felt very depressed. And I mean that. I felt like it was bankrupt mm. of any of the things that were most important. Free will, mm. knowledge of God, things like that. I thought this is... The contemporary people were not talking about that or they were dismissing? They were, but it was in a way that it seemed to like, I don't know how to describe it, Lewis, uh, uh, Lucas, other than saying it sucked. I felt like it sucked all the life out of it. Did you just mistake me for C.S. Lewis? Thank I, you. It's so easy to do. Thank I'm sorry. Thank you so <laughs> much. I need to go. It could have been Kevin. It could, there could I'm be, gonna, you know, you know there's a lot of people named Lewis, Lewis. I don't know if you knew that, but there are just like with Adolf, there are a lot of people named Lewis. So it could have been some other Lewis. I'm not sure, but I think it might've been C.S. Lewis. Um, in any case, well, let's just make this, maybe I can make this story short. I started reading Thomas Aquinas because I took Eleanor Stump's class. And I thought, this is the metaphysics I've been looking for. Mm. Like I even said that in that Was voice. she a good teacher? She's a great teacher, a great teacher. And a, and a wonderful human being. And I felt like she was so kind to me. She kind of took me under her wing. And uh, so we had, we had a good relate. And not to say that, I mean, she was, she scolded me. She has a way she's of, I don't know. Uh, she was a Calvinist. She, she, <laughs> no, she's not. Definitely. What did, not. What did she scold you for? Uh, for, you know, certain weaknesses, certain strengths can be also weaknesses. I just was never satisfied with a question. I want to keep going deeper. She's like, Aaron, you have to start somewhere. You, you can't. She started saying, you're, you're, uh, you're exemplifying my joke about the guy who goes to a party and says, let's talk about John Locke. He says, wait, to understand John Locke, you need to understand Descartes. But in order to understand Descartes, you need to understand, uh, you know, hmm. I don't know. Who, whoever Suarez or something like that. So mm -hmm. she said, "You're you're act like that." I'm like, "Okay, I got it. I'll, I'll work on that." Um, in any case, uh, so I, I did my dissertation with her on Thomistic metaphysics, and um, who else was on your committee? John Greco and another guy. Uh, I can't believe I'm I'm forgetting his name all of a sudden. I must be tired or something. Well, just his social security number, if you don't remember his name. <laughs> That's right. I'm forgetting that too. Um, okay. Well, both metaphysicians. Address? Well, he was working in the metaphysics of power, this other guy. And so, and that's what my dissertation was on. It was on Thomas's, I, Thomas's account of power, of causal power. Oh, okay. So that's what my dissertation was on. But it, that sounds quite technical and it is quite technical. Uh, but for me, it, it, it meant a lot because it's a fundamental part of his metaphysics. Well, and to me, it made sense of all kinds of stuff outside metaphysics, made sense of epistemology. It made sense of ethics. It was, it was a kind of, there are certain concepts or ideas or accounts that are like keys to a lot, to open, to elucidating lots of other things. And that's what I felt about his idea of power, the, which is a very, first, the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear that you did is that on your for your dissertation is 
hasn't that been written about before? <laughs> How do you find there's not <laughs> that's yeah, you would think so, but he doesn't have a single statement of it or a single passage or a single work on it. It's just like in a background everywhere. It's like 700 years ago, right? So I, I won a dissertation scholarship and I just read for a year. I just read. That's all I did. I was paid to read one of the best years of my life. I just read all his, his commentaries, all his uh, disputations and uh try to you know glean every time he talked about power i would i have this book it's probably right next to me in this drawer i mean i took all these notes like every i, I filled pages of just references to wherever he talked about power and what he said about it and then tried to catalog it I even started like a a table of contents to categorize it but that was so boring i never got finished with that but um so you read real books like physical <laughs> read, objects you yeah I, I have them there, some of them are down here on the shelf behind me. That's old school, uh, man. That's the way to do it. Yeah, and you I get into the. I, Latin. I can't read books without writing in them. I I I would read both English because I didn't when I came to uh, St. Louis University. I didn't know Latin, so I got a Latin book and just tried to teach myself Latin. And then I would read Latin and I'd try to translate it to okay. you know. Um. Anyways, so I did that dissertation. And take you to write it. It took a long time, especially Eleanor Stump. Uh, she, she's exacting, which is great. But I, I, I think I was told more than once, "This is okay. You got your, you got your draft here. Now throw it in the trash and start over." So some of it was like that, and not in a bad way. But like now you've gotten, you've gotten all this stuff out. Now you need to to redo it and reapproach it with a, with a certain sort of focus. Wow. And it was, so I did a lot. I mean, I wrote hundreds and I don't know how many pages I wrote before I had something I really, that was worth. The, the difficulty was that not only was I trying to glean from all over Thomas's corpus of work, a certain account that he never really lay, lays out, but mm -hmm. it's there. It's just there okay. in the background. But I was okay. using that okay. and applying that to contemporary metaphysics because since the 60s some metaphysics have had a kind there was kind of anti david hume push a push against david hume mm -hmm. and they said that powers are real basically this is obviously so way they, after thomas aquinas way after yes this is in this is in the 1960s and uh what are these people called? Who, who are they? Who are these so they go by different labels. Powers realists, neo-Aristotelians. Some Can of you them throw a couple names out. Uh, John Heil was right. Actually, he was at Washington University, which is across the park, you know, near St. Louis University. Yeah. Um, so you got Adolf and then you got Heil. I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about what you're going to say after that. <laughs> um. But so, so I was, I was, uh, so I was trying to take Thomas Aquinas and apply, because so it's like they were reinventing the wheel, I felt, these mm -hmm. contemporary metaphysicians, they're asking all kinds of questions, and debating and, and really not getting to the bottom of these questions, because powers seem very weird. Uh, and they are, they seem, they're really weird. What's, you what's have weird about them? What's weird, what's weird about them is you have, so you, let's say you have a match, you strike it, it explodes into flame, right? It ignites. And you say, oh, that is combustible. Okay, you've named a power. A 
a power is basically an ability to do something. Okay, what makes that the power that it is? Hmm. It has a certain, they the contemporaries call it a manifestation. It has a certain effect or a certain uh, op, kind, a way of operating, right? They don't say, a, a way uh, they of, don't say anything about So you define, well, they don't use that language. They use, contemporaries don't use that language. That's, so, the, that's uh, the first thing I they, think of is potential. Right, right. So that's what Thomas Aquinas calls it, calls it potency. But we say potential. What is that word? It comes from the Latin potency, which means, which is translated power, right? That's, that's what potential means, powerful, able to do or able to be. Yeah. In any case, it's weird yeah. that you characterize something by a quality that it doesn't have, right. but that it would have. That's what's weird about it. It's like pointed. This is, and this is, and they tried to get, a, and a lot of contemporaries try to get away from that pointing, but that's the heart of it. And that's what Thomas says. There, the qualities of things in the world point, they're directed. He called it, in, they're intentional. Hmm. Combustibility is an intentional thing. It intends a certain kind of quality. You're making it, matches sound like really sexy right now. Kind of okay. like, no, that's not the right word exactly, but it's, th there's mystical almost. It is. And I'll tell you why. Uh, because I'll just cut to the chase here. What Thomas says is that you, we, we talk about causation. We, the, the causation we talk about is usually what we call efficient causation, the kind of causation that produces something, makes an effect, right? You're using Aristotle's language now. Yeah, right. Yeah. For those the, who are paying attention. And so there's a whole historical story to tell where there's other causes. One and what and I'm gonna say now, and I'll say why in a second. The most important one is final causation. Hmm. That was rejected. I mean, in 500 years ago. That was by, you by can't who? see it, not by you can't everybody. see purposes. Not by, uh, not everybody. by everybody, but yeah. largely. It, there was a movement uh, because, that was popular that rejected it. Well, I mean, you if you read Descartes talking about powers, he mocks it. And other, other of those... There were still people that, that were reading Aquinas that didn't reject it, right? I mean, That's right. There, Catholic, there were... Catholic circles. Yeah, Catholics. And, but even uh, one of my favorite modern philosophers, Leibniz, was open to causal... He liked causal oh. powers. Oh, and any, uh, or he liked final causation, that is to say. Oh, okay. But in any case, so... Final causation is the purpose. You can just say it's the, it's what things aim for. Right. And the reason that was rejected is because you can't see that. Yeah. You can't observe, right? Uh, Not exactly. You only see the way yeah, things behave. Of, yeah. Well, you I can, can see, look at a, you know, I can look at a knife, and I could, I think I can see the purpose of it. You uh, do. Mur but, but a murderer you know, looks at the knife differently, <laughs> maybe. But you know the purpose because you know you know a certain kind of activity. Yeah. I've thought and about this, the, and that's I, the activity that defines it. Okay, I thought yeah. about this quite a bit recently, just this past week, because there was a birthday party, and um, the setting was church. Uh, the setting is people that are not necessarily against guns, but they would probably be squirmy and squealy. And mm -hmm. th there's a reason I'm saying this: the knife used to cut the cake was probably nine inches long. And could have easily been a murder weapon in a horror movie right. of some kind. 
nobody had the slightest squirmy squeezy reaction to that when anybody it looked like it was made for nefarious purposes right it had that shape well it could have been but but that's that's the funny thing about it is that right that these folks (laughs) pretend to be so squirmy with guns i'm not even sure if they really are because they don't Mm -hmm. squirm when a police officer walks by that's that's the only reason i say that but but uh i think there's something else going on but there there's this knife at church that is just the most and there's several of them it's not just one and if i have this in my hand a certain way nobody would now if i switched it in my hand people would probably react differently but but there's this you know it's funny because people can see the purpose of the the object it's not the object itself that's the problem it's the right it's the the way it's used and the way that you conceive of it being used anyway so so powers are just like just like a magazine that holds 16 rounds instead of right 11 or 10 because once you cross a certain number it's it's made to kill people yeah, and the, so knife, and the knife I'm talking about was sharp. It was very sharp. It could have easily been used to kill five people before anybody could do anything about it. Right. Yeah. If you knew what you were doing, you could easily do that. Yeah. It gets rather complicated when you're talking about artifacts, things that are made and can be used for different things. That's but yeah, true. at a basic at a That's basic true. level. Well, we were uh, talking about matches, so yeah. So at a if you go down to like natural Right. more basic powers like ignitability or motion motive powers or something like that in any case what's weird is that you have a you have a characteristic of something a property of something defined by something else that need not ever ex- happen or exist yeah, right but it has the thing that does the thing that you're talking about the property has its identity based on that yeah okay so when i buy so- when i buy matches at the store I make sure to tell the person at Walmart, these matches don't even have to be struck. And in fact, I'm not even planning on striking them. And then they usually look at me like, this is going in my emergency kit. (laughs) But they're still matches. And they still have the potential not to get to a Thomas Aquinas on you. Are you Catholic? Yes, I am. That that story. This is is me talking to the the Walmart person. Oh, I thought you were interviewing me. No, no, that's the dialogue. I was telling you the dialogue. And and what did they say? Uh, They say that's a good idea to have extra matches. And, Mm. and then I go along. They they were afraid you might ignite them all. (laughs) No, I don't think so. So we identify things. I mean, we identify that's their identity based on right something else that doesn't exist that's what seems weird to, and contemporaries are like trying to figure this out but if you're thomas he i mean this is the heart of the idea of a power that it it is of the very nature of a power to aim at something else and like how is that because to be anything at all is to have is to have reference to some ultimate cause i mean i'm really cutting out a lot here. I'm just getting cutting to the chase here. 
So everything has built-in purpose. It's aimed at something. It's first aimed to be fully what it is. So now here you have the basis of virtue ethics, right? What is it to be a human being? Is to have a certain nature. To, and what is what is it to be a good human being? To fully actualize that nature, right? That the idea here is that there's purpose built into natures. But going back to what I said earlier, we think of causation as having its basis in this productive sort of power. But what Thomas says is you wouldn't even have that. You wouldn't even have efficient causation unless you had what he calls final causation, this built-in purpose. So it turns out that at the very bottom level of reality, you have intentionality, aiming at something greater and fuller. Right. Um, and hey, that's so just... Re so reality is brimming with purpose. Yeah, at, at the most basic level. And you think that's true? Yes. Now, let me, um, I feel like if, if you somebody... don't say that, if you don't, okay, here, there's a few things to say. If Let, you don't on, say let's, that, let's, let's back up a bit. All right. All right. Because right, I think what's back, tripping people back. up right now in the future, if they've gotten this far, is they're trying to conceive of what a PhD program in philosophy is like, what you're you're talking about these people writing in 1960s you're talking about some guy that lived when did thomas live he died in 1274 okay so you're talking about 800 750 years 700 years right you're talking mm -hmm. about a long time yeah and philosophy is going on this whole time and it's like what do you do when you do a phd in philosophy the you know, in science, the idea is to refine what the last guy said and make sure we get it right. And then the, the next guy takes it and mm -hmm. refines that. Is that what's happening in philosophy? Because that's what people sometimes might be mixed up. Is there an sometimes. answer? How do you know? How do you know what the right answer is? Well, how do you not know the right answer to anything? There's it depends on what you're trying to answer. Right. Uh but you, if so, so many people of, disagree, right? There's so much disagreement. I feel like we've had this conversation recently. We got it. We got to have it again because I guarantee you that's what people are thinking right now. So disagreement doesn't in doesn't in, the fact of disagreement does not imply that there's no reality. First of all, right? That there's no that there's no answer. People say, you know, there's no answer. What do they mean by that? It's kind of ambiguous. Are they saying there's no reality that answers to the concepts we're using most of the time they mean we can't figure we can't figure it out it's a lost cause um yeah. and there are some philosophers that think that sure actually uh well what's it like but doing disagreement but the fact is, that there but that that is there a lot of inference does that inference uh doesn't it, it's an illegitimate inference from the fact of disagreement right it's that's just not there's 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 nothing about the fact of disagreement that implies that you can't know something that you obviously that, have to have enough agreement to get the people's signature on your right. dissertation you also have to have enough agreement to this goes back to an earlier point you made i mean if you're talking about something you already have a target mm -hmm. of inquiry 
if you have a concept that you understand at all, <laughs> then, there, then you have some target of inquiry. Uh, so that's good. And a lot of the work is trying to refine that because things get, I mean, what did do you Augustine think that's, say? That's said what, if you, go ahead. Do you think that that's what people agree with when you're doing a PhD in philosophy? Is that what hangs, I, lets it all hang together? You know, you're asking a really good question. Here's, I think it sounds like to me, you're asking the question, uh, is philosophy a cohesive, progressing enterprise? And the answer, yeah. and the answer is not a very easy one to give mm -hmm. because nowadays, and I'd say for the last hundred years, at least, there's not even a consensus on what it is to do philosophy. If you mm -hmm. go look up in the Stanford Encyclopedia, as of now, I don't know. But I've done this before. If you go look up philosophy as an entry, you're not going to find it. Whoa, I didn't know that. that that's think about that for a second. The the encyclopedia. Right yeah, you should check. Maybe they have one, but uh, one they do have is metaphysics, and nobody metaphysicians don't even agree on that. I mean, so that's a problem. So what, when you're when you talk about philosophy, you can talk about a giant label. Or you can talk about certain historical lines of inquiry or conversations, right? Mm -hmm. So, in in scholastic philosophy, there's a lot of there's disagreement, but there's a consensus about the worldview. <laughs> oh my gosh, are you seeing this? Yeah, I see it, and I'm sure anybody who views this would then too. Well, um, I think most of our listeners, they just listen. They listen to an Apple podcast. They can't see what we're doing. So we see Byzantine I, philosophy. I mean, there's look at I, all the numbers below. Like, well, look on. at how many. Tell them what, we're on Stanford Latinx, Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Lantinx, I, just, I, I don't just, think I've ever said this word out loud, but Lantinx. I just searched the word philosophy. That's all I put in the search bar in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and which is plato.stanford.edu the first entry is latinx philosophy <laughs> which is a brand new made-up word in the last probably i don't know it's definitely within my lifetime it's probably in just during my teaching career actually the second one is experimental philosophy then japanese then process there's always something in front of the word there's philosophy. always a qualifier yeah there's not just the no, word no. philosophy. Well, how do you know what? I'm not an English is? major. I'm not an English major, but I would think that you can't qualify something that doesn't itself have very good some kind of definition. That's meaning. fascinating. Yeah. What is it that makes all these things philosophy? Philosophy of technology, Chinese philosophy, philosophy of education, philosophy of macroevolution. Critical philosophy of race, Japanese Confucian philosophy, feminist philosophy of biology, philosophy of history. The word philosophy is never defined on Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And thank you, Dr. Aaron Clark, for pointing that out. That's fascinating. Yeah, That's also disturbing. It's actually really disturbing to me well there's the story to be told and i tell it in my intro classes i don't know if i do a great job at it but i think i i think it needs to be told uh because there there are times in history where it did have 
a, a definition. Yeah. Well, what's and, the classic uh, definition? Uh, right. The the love of wisdom. Philia, Sophia, two Greek words. Sophia meaning wisdom, philia meaning love. Um, and that meant in sock and, and that definition really comes about through Plato because there were two major in Western philosophy, at least, two major groups of called philosophers at the time called philosophers that were very different. Now they go by the names, the pre-Socratics and the Sophists. But it was Socrates who, in a sense, uh, took what was he thought, what was right about pre-Socratic philosophy and was right about Sophist philosophy and raised it up to what became a foundation for Western thought. And that was this idea that you can know truth. You can know truth. That's the very purpose of philosophy, to know the truth about things that matter most. And what Socrates said before he was executed was, I want to know what it is to be a good person. I want to know what goodness is. And I will, and you would have to kill me to stop me from seeking to know what goodness is, because what other, what other point is there? If I can't be a good person, then why am I here? So, I mean, even he thought, you know, to be a human is to aim at something, but we have a will. We can aim ourselves in different directions. And he wanted to aim himself in the right direction. That is the true direction, according to what is true. Mm. So, so this is something that I'm, I'm really, uh, I think about a lot. It's really important to me. This idea of uh, truth and goodness or knowledge and goodness cannot be separated. You can't be good without a certain kind of knowledge, but you can't even get that knowledge without being good in some way. And I suppose if there's anything I would like my students to think about, it's that. That you, I mean, Will, Dallas Willard made the point that people, we care about being good. Tell somebody they're not a good person and see how they respond. Yeah. It's not going to be pretty. Oh, yeah. You're gonna... Right. But then, that's why then politics in the is next the way sentence, is. they're saying it's up to you. Right. It's up to you. They, they at least they're professing this idea that you cannot be mistaken about it. And that's the thing. I, if there's anything I want my students to. To internalize, it's the idea that you can be mistaken about the things that matter most. You can be mistaken about what it is to be good and what it is to live a good life. I think Severely. you just gave us the title. You just gave us the title of the episode. You can be mistaken about the things that matter most with Dr. Aaron Clark, PhD. Whenever I'm doing an episode, I always think of what's the title, even if right. it's a wide ranging discussion, um, the way the software works, they want you to title it something. And then the way it works when, when a viewer or a listener uh, searches for what they're interested in uh, listening to on their commute in traffic or where they're doing the laundry or whatever, I try to capture something that's true of the conversation, but oftentimes it's not quite the entire conversation because that, that right. would, that's an overproduced podcast. I think some, I mean, some podcasts do it and they, you know, they, um, they, you have to be really a kind of a control freak to do it that way. And some podcasts mm -hmm. do, um, but, um, in wide ranging discussions like this, it's, it's, it can be a challenge to find the thread, the thread, but I think you just gave it to us. You can be, you can be mistaken. 
Say, say it, say it one more time. You can be mistaken about the things that matter most. I think I said severely mistaken, but you don't need to, it can be, make it simple, right? Well, I usually go by the word count. I usually go right up to the end of the word count that they allow on, on YouTube, which is a hundred characters. Mm-hmm. You can when I say that to people that matter most yeah. when I say and I think philosophy simply defined getting back to the definition we want is thinking carefully about the things that matter most okay. if you want a very rough but in any case when I say we can That's be mistaken the definition about of philosophy that, that you you give I, I think so yeah I mean it can be elaborated say, and say more I, I do say, say it again say say that definition of philosophy again Thinking carefully about the things that matter most. I mean, there's more to it than that. I think you need to include the idea of truth. Seeking the truth of the things that matter most by thinking carefully about them. Something like that. Uh, There are lots of things we talked about that I feel like we didn't resolve. Um, (laughs) Like what? Well, so we were talking about, I think we were talking about, I was reading the New Testament. Maybe we resolved that, uh, my dissertation. And it's fine with me if we, if we don't resolve them. I'm just, I feel like I have such a tendency to go off on tangents because I find it other many questions interesting. I, I, I hope I didn't lead us, start something and then not finish it. And what, what thread would you like to, why don't you, why don't we start to try to resolve some of these things? Okay, so what I wanted to say about powers and what Thomas says about powers is that, as we've said, uh, purpose is inherent in everything at the most fundamental level. And and you think this is true? I absolutely think it's true. In other words, this isn't just a history project. Thomas said that. Isn't that interesting? It's not one little thing after another. You're and so I'm glad Thomas, you brought up history. Thomas is telling us the truth. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I'm glad you brought up history because there's, uh, as a philosopher, a contemporary philosopher, Alistair McIntyre pointed out, there's two ways of looking at history. One is just these things happening after another. Um, and there's there's no valuation. There's no saying whether they're good or not. They just happen. You know the bumper sticker, right? Um, But then there's another way of thinking about history, and it's about things getting better or getting worse, right? Now, you can only say that if there's some standard to measure that by, right? And if things themselves can aim at that standard. Right. That's the very idea of final causality in things things aim to be a certain way and they are good in the sense that they achieve that aim they're like you're a good knife you brought up the idea of a knife what is a knife well we might define it as a cutting instrument just to be rough well how do you know what a good knife is by knowing what sort of thing it is that contains an aim you know a kind of function as it's often called the function of cutting. So a bad knife doesn't cut well, a good knife does cut well. You can't understand, at least in the Aristotelian and Thomistic sense, you can't understand goodness. Right, right. 
I mean, it comes that conversation. Well, I mean, if you use would be helped out somebody, by somebody, that would be right. an assault weapon. That's right. Like a big knife that you used to cut cake with. Why is that not an assault weapon? I don't understand. I never understand these definitions that people come up with. These terms. In any case, to me, that just opens up the the idea of things aiming, of intention. Intentionality is fundamental, and that opens up ethics and epistemology for me. It makes sense of a lot, a lot. Give um, an example of what it makes sense in epistemology of. Okay, so. Uh, Define this, epistemology. I, I edu- I'm, I'm tempted to get into a, a, a you know a hot button topic here. Just define epistemology but for us first. Epistemology uh, is the study of what it is we know, how we know. It's concerned with questions of knowledge and truth. It's literally the the theory of knowledge. Episteme is the Greek word for knowledge or science. It's often translated, and ology right comes from logos, study of discourse about. Uh, it's it's a realm of questions that have to do with knowledge and are and seeking the truth and having beliefs. Okay, so those you could say those three things: belief, truth, and knowledge are the key topics in epistemology. Well, the way Thomas understands them is as certain powers, right? Uh, uh, knowledge. What knowledge is is a habit. It is uh, a disposition to, ha- to, to believe the truth that comes about in a certain way. Right? It's not by accident. It's a natural disposition. So he would say, like, when you learn mathematics, you're building a certain habit in your mind. You're, you're learning to see the world or some aspect of it in a certain way and building the habit to see it in that way. And to notice it and to be aware of it in its, all of its detail. That's what it is to know something. And you have the kind of power that does that. Mm-hmm. You, have different, you have different powers that apprehend, that register somehow what reality is and, and incorporate that into your being in a way. Right. So the senses encode what's out in reality in certain ways and there's different kinds of encoding mechanisms, but the intellect itself grasps universals. And when you know something, when you have truth, there's a certain perfection of the power. And when you have knowledge, it's a habitual perfection. You're habituated in, so if you know math, you're habituated into seeing mathematical properties. If, if you know, uh, if, you're an, if you're a specialist in art, you're habituated to see intricacies of shade and color and structure and stuff like that you have a kind of knowledge is that an internalist understanding of knowledge that is a great question i i'm always i've always wanted to hang on to internalism uh and let's maybe we should say what that is uh and people don't disagree about this but my understanding of internalism is that um you can be you can be aware I think in terms of reasons, you can be aware of the reasons of your belief and they're, uh, yeah. and they're showing that your belief is worth holding, even that it's knowledge. Yeah. Maybe not all the times, but you can be. So I, uh, must you be? I don't know if I'd go that far. I think we know things without some, 
I think, and Will, actually Willard held this, and I, I had an interesting conversation, Dallas Willard again, in his office, that you can know things without believing them. Uh, How many discussions you, did you have with him? Just one in person, more over emails and stuff, but one in person. Okay. How, long was was great How long was that conversation? Seemed like a long time because they were, I think there must have been times where we were silent for five, maybe 10 minutes at a time, sitting there in silence. It was really interesting. Until you just couldn't take it anymore. And you're just like, no, actually, no, 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 until, no, he, no. until he couldn't take it anymore. He's just like, say something. <laughs> Say it was, no, it was much it was much calmer than that. We just we'd kind of answer a topic and then just sit and kind of think about it yeah. and then raise Anybody another who point. knows who Dallas Willard is knows what I just said was so ridiculous. That's why it's funny. It's because it's so ridiculous. Because he was like the calmest guy. He could probably sit yeah. there for hours not saying anything. And yeah, happy, I loved that. Fine I thought that. this so refreshing because I'm a hardcore introvert and sometimes I just get tired uh, of talking. Um, so, uh, so we, we can know things without we're... believing them. Yeah, we can know things. Okay. And, um, give, give an uh, example of that. Do you believe that? Well, I don't know. I believe it. Uh, I think I do because I've had an experience of, well, well, there's we a couple, know, and, we can know I, things without well, believing them, but I don't believe that. But I do know that. Uh, uh, Sorry, I couldn't resist. Joke I was going to make. I know it's irresistible. I could not resist. Sorry. I started, but I, you know, I feel like you should be the one to say something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Dallas. I've had experiences where I'm taking a test and I just feel strongly that it's the answer, but I feel like I have no internal. Mm, okay. Right. But, uh, but system, if you were to look at it, take a systematic look of the way that I, I wanted to answer. It seemed out of the bounds of the statistics that would allow it to be a guest, the statistical evidence. There's something called um, blind sight. Hmm. Have you ever heard of this? Blind sight, where people think they're blind because they have no internal visual experience. But they discriminate things. To a, a degree that it just is impossible that they don't they aren't aware of. Yeah, that's interesting. And this is even more interesting, kind of scary. I don't know if you've had this experience driving and then after 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, having no visual recollection of anything yeah. transpired. Right. Yep. It's like you were yeah. on autopilot or some lower cognitive functioning functioning. That's just aware. I mean, you would probably swerve if a car swerved at you, but you're just spoken like a true adjunct yeah. you know i i uh i wonder though is that is that knowledge by there's some kind of an ability or a habit so uh, I, yeah there's a different so i think knowledge is that propositional knowledge i don't know. i don't think so i i there is a distinction ernest sosa i know you know who that is that he made that i thought was a good distinction he talked about animal knowledge versus yeah. philosophical knowledge of human law i i, I like think the that's knowledge a good, of how to so, ride a bike for example right, right. Yeah, I, I don't know that that's propositional. I mean, I think of driving the same way um, where I get lost in thought as I'm driving. And yeah, it's um, actually firearms are like that. I, 
I wish that we could get more people to have that kind of knowledge of firearms, the same level of comfort that they would in driving. I, 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 there's, there's so many sociological barriers to that because so many people have such an irrational fear of firearms. Um, but it's, it's, have you ever been driving and suddenly become aware of how close to death you are and just how many, how much you trust other people. I mean, like there are people I'm, that are I'm inches mis- away I'm from you going the other way. Mis- well, I'm very trusting when I drive. I'm very There are people that are inches away from you going the other way. Yeah. I mean, you have to trust to that extent. And these but are I've... massive objects that have incredible destructive power. And yet, uh, yeah, we're perfectly comfortable just, uh, you know, in our own thoughts, you know, just, but anyway, I, I, that's how I am with firearms. That scares me I'm when I've so, been in my own thoughts. I'm so, uh, comfortable with firearms bec- and that I, I have the same level of, of comfort with that. But anyway, so what would you, what would you say an example is in ethics? You said that you can see this in ethics as well. Um, well, I think it's it's the basis of ethics. Uh, the The basis of ethics is being a good kind of being a good human being. Okay. You and being ethics. good. Is that what you mean yeah. by that? Being a good human being means actualizing the fullness of what it is to be human, to think well, to act well in in various situations. Um, so there are virtues of the mind or intellectual virtues and virtues of character or moral virtues. And those are understood in terms of powers. You have the power, you know, I have the power to move my arm. I have the power to speak and all sorts of other powers. Um, but I can do that in a way and I can be habituated to do that in a way that's beautiful and good and has value and, and, and um, you know, uh, approaches or enhances what is of most value. Now you need that. That's part of ethics. What is valuable? Where does value come from? But as far as uh, having virtues and acting well, that is to be understood in terms of powers and habits. A habit is a kind of power that's natural and easy. So someone who is generous uh, is it's easy for them to want to give to others or care for others. They do it happily, right? Right. They don't, they don't, they're not begrudgingly doing it. And that's, so a virtue is basically a habit, which is a kind of power that is done easily. It's a habit that makes you excellent. That's what a virtue is. Yeah. And the moral rules are really derivative. It's the life. It's the goodness of the being that is primary. And then you can look at, okay, what does that kind of person do on a habitual basis? right? What makes them excellent? Well, they do think they have certain habits. They do certain things easily and with pleasure that makes their life beautiful. Okay. What are those things? Well, now you, now you have things like generosity, being generous, giving to this person, being kind or whatever the, the sorts of rules we could, we could formulate. And they're real. The rules are real, but they're grounded or they derive from what it is to truly to be good. And that's understood in terms of power. Power philosophy used. is interesting because you get to the class and you're supposed to read something. How do you know what to read in philosophy? 
in a you're talking as a teacher or a, someone who's assigning i'm just talking readings. about philosophy i mean how do you know you got to read you got to start somewhere how do you know where to start well there i guess there's different ways to approach it i would i think can you, i'd like to go can to you go about it the wrong way yeah, of course you can. You can read things. You can read a, a very highly technical things that presuppose all kinds of background, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that's the wrong way. And what's you a, can. What's a better way? I think a good way to to do it is to start. I think the best way to teach philosophy is, like you said earlier, to get someone to notice in themselves the questions they already have, mm. and to start trying to make sense of those. Um, and I think okay. ancient, I, th I think there's no better place to start than Plato. I mean, anybody who, I just think when you read Plato, it's so natural. The questions come up so naturally and you find yourself, I mean, this has been my experience as a teacher and as a student, you find yourself asking the questions with Plato. Yeah. And I, and, and so I think the, mo the most important way to start philosophy is to get somebody to recognize in them, in their own natural movements of 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 thinking mm -hmm. that they are already care about these things they already yeah. want to know these things they yeah. already ask these questions so there's and so an you just want to do it well yeah yeah there's an interior you, you gotta tap to tap into that if you don't you will not be motivated enough to do yeah. the hard work that takes I think so. to do it well that's right do you right. think that uh, and I Aristotle see both I both correct? I see both kinds of students the students who don't at the beginning of my classes if they tune out and they don't care Sure. It's just going to be very difficult to get them to care later. Do you think that Plato uh, was correct or Aristotle uh, where they disagreed about things? Aristotle was uh, Plato's student. Um, turns out you know, they there's were both a... huge figures in philosophy. And right, they had some disagreements. So where do they disagree? One of the main disagreements is this idea of, I'm sorry, I have to use some technical language here, subsisting universals or forms that means plato thought that forms are these universal i mean the word greek word is ados we get our word idea so ideas the very essences of things i think that's the best way to think of them existed independently and aristotle it's hard to know how to interpret him in this regard but we can say that what is universal is within the things so if I have five chickens, what it is to be a chicken is it is in is somehow inherent into all of those particular things. Whereas for which, for which one? For Aristotle. For Plato, it was a separate being. That's what subsisting means. It means it exists independently. Now, I know philosophers always give much more complicated answers to the questions, <laughs> the simple question. Now I think they're both on to something. Uh, I, I think that someone like Plotinus or the Neoplatonists uh, brought together uh, or gave something that satisfied both of their, their arguments, that there's a single, simple, infinite source of everything that is infinitely perfect. I know I was a little bit redundant there, but there's a single sustaining source of all reality that contains every possible perfection in an infinite way. And so everything 
the reason you have universals is because everything that exists is some limited imitation of that. So in one sense, Plato was right. There's something subsisting, but it wasn't plural. It was, it was single. Okay. And Aristotle's right to say that there's a universal and how my interpretation of Aristotle is that there's not a single entity that's in all the particulars. It's just the particulars perfectly imitate or they're perfectly similar in some way. I know that's that uh, maybe JP Moreland would say I'm a moderate nominalist. I, I, I don't know if that, that fits, but uh, Aristotle held that there's nothing. Everything is particular in existence. Everything is particular. Um, but in any case, this is the, what I just said, that there's a single transcendent, I didn't use that word, but you can include that transcendent sustaining source of all reality uh, that contains within itself every possible perfection, every possible way of being in an infinite measure is Thomas's view of God, St. Thomas. What about ugliness? Um, is, is ugliness, ugliness something ugliness, that can, Good, that that's a great perfect. question. And that, that should be, ugliness is not po- something positive in reality. It's a lack. So evil is, on this view, is always a lack of something. It's a falling short. But what is, whatever, something can't be perfectly ugly. Something can't be perfectly bad. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it just falls short of what it ought to be. That's what evil is. It, it's something that falls short of what it ought to be. And by the way, that's the, I, I said ugly the definition of sin, right? Evil in 2.5 nanoseconds. That's because the ugliness, beauty is a kind of goodness. I, maybe I should have made that clear, but ugly, I, ugliness is a lack of beauty. But there's a more general answer, and that's that evil is a, a privation, a, a deprivation of a good that's supposed to be there. Mm. Yeah, and ne- the Neoplatonists said that, but I, I you surprised me when you said well, Plotinus had the answer. I didn't expect that. You just said yeah, that. I think he Aristotle and and Plato left some unanswered questions, and I think Plotinus answers them. And people who say that Thomas is Aristotelian, I think he's more Neoplatonist. If you want to put him in a a merely philosophical category, wow, I, that's the first I've heard of that. Yeah. Uh, I had a boss at a Jesuit university I taught at for over a decade that was a a Plotinus fan. His name is Eric Pearl. He teaches at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. One of my my most favorite passages or excerpts of a work is uh, Plotinus's discourse or his little convert. He's kind of hard to read. He kind of meanders, but his uh, discussion of beauty. I read it to my classes. To me, it's one of the most, not just most enjoyable because of the ideas, but one of the most important things. It's You're not about, beauty. Did you say Plotinus? Plotinus discussion of beauty. Really? Oh. Yeah. Does it have any pictures in it? It doesn't. It's intellectually uh, beautiful. What she says is a better than, greater beauty than. Okay. All right. Uh, I'll take your word for it. Usually if it beauty. doesn't have any pictures, I throw the book away. Uh, which is why I, have, I, I, I only have a couple I knew of copies that of the you. Bible left. That's right. Um, I, I've got the Precious Moments Bible. I bet you had need some children's children's Bibles. <laughs> so we have an idea of philosophy. As seems like if you're going to do a PhD in philosophy, you have to be convinced that you can find truth about something that's valuable. 
Otherwise, why would you spend all that time? That was my, that was my motivation and I would not have done it otherwise. It was what attracted me to philosophy. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? I mean, when I, when I came, sure. But let me say this. When I came to that thought, to me, that's one of the most joyous moments in my life. Yeah. When I thought I can know the truth about things that matter most. I mean, think about the denial of that. Yeah. That's, that's horrible. It's horrific. Yeah. Do you think that John Greco has that view of philosophy? You're asking me to critique uh, philosophers. Well, no, I'm I mean, asking he you says to describe. I'm asking you to describe his view. Oh, is that his view of philosophy? I don't yeah. think he does have that view of philosophy. I he might, and I might be mistaken. But I, I I remember conversations with him, not ones that I was a participant in, but one I was an observer, okay. where uh, philosophy. And if he ever watches this, he's free to correct me. And I'm, I'm a fallible. He probably won't. Philosophy is, philosophy has, uh, is useful to problem solve and to conceptual, to, you know, to solve conceptual problems. Uh, and I always was told by everybody that learned I was a philosopher. I always was told that that was the most useless thing I could do. And why would you yeah, ever do that? And that's I, right. Well, why? Well, the best things in life are useless. <laughs> I mean, what's, fr- what's the use of friendship? Are you saying you want friendship because you can get you something? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I don't think that's well, why if a person really friendship. does have that view of friendship. Then what does that say about their friendships? I think they just, they don't understand what friendship is or, or there's some sort of well, perversion to understand what it is. Well, I mean, but, but there, I think there is a hardening of the heart when you want something and you're used to just thinking of it that way. Or there's a habit. It's a sloppy habit, maybe. I said they either they don't understand it, or there's a kind of perversion uh, hmm. in their in their the way the way they love things or value things. Sense. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of business people sound like this. I'm not sure if that's how they. Really My wife are. is really interested in psychology, and we always have conversations yeah. about whether insane people know or whether she's really interested in forensic uh, anthropology. Mm-hmm. And so she reads a lot about serial killers and mm. tries to understand like what, what is their, her big question is what is their moral culpability? And, and right. they usually ends up having to do with a kind of knowledge or understanding whether they're culpable or not. But anyways, I don't so know why I anybody would want to kill. Children. Some people, some people have, they seem to, they seem to be disconnected and, right. I think often it's by their will or by their neglect, maybe not a direct willing, but by a a kind of neglect. I think that's what it is with business people. A lot of business people, when they're talking about networking, they talk about making friends, connections, right. uh, but, but people who use the term friend. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think that's what you mean. That's now it's a verb. You can friend somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got All right. Well, let me, let me ask past. you about teaching. Let me ask you about teaching. So you've taught for a long time now. You've, you've have quite a bit of experience. Looking back on your time, getting your PhD and teaching, would you do it over again, getting the PhD in, in philosophy? You know what? I would. My initial motives were that I thought this is something I love yeah. and I, I would like to make money and make a living doing something I love. Mm. That hasn't turned out very well at all. But, but um, 
the you training and, and the and the habits that I have and the and uh, the philosophical ideas that I've encountered uh, are foundational to my the way I live, and I would and I am I would never want to give that up. I mean, the way I raise my children, the way I the way I treat try to interact with my wife, the way I try to treat other people, the way I think about my faith even, and try to think carefully about that. So your is, PhD had a lot to do with the stuff that's most yeah. important to you. Not just, not just because it was a PhD, but maybe because of my, the way I want, you know, the way I approached it. Like I really, this, this was some, I, I couldn't write about something I didn't feel like had deep importance. Mm-hmm life importance so you would do it over again yeah at least if that was the only way to get if that was that was the only way to to have this it isn't the only way now if you're saying well perfect if you could do this and not have to get the phd uh you, you know it's hard to answer that question because there are so many events that have happened in my life now do yeah. i ignore that and try to answer this in the abstract or not I, i'm not sure how to answer that question to, what, how do you how do you feel about higher education? Do you think it's I got feel, any hope at all, or is it totally a lost cause? The current structures, the current universities, I feel like are trying to be have have a history that that comes from a kind of role in a certain kind of society that cannot be played right now. I, I know that was a little bit difficult. Let's say this, the role of the university in its original conception cannot be played in this society in general right now. It can't. What I think, but that doesn't mean we should get rid of the universities. What we should have, I mean, the, look, you need to answer the broader question. What's going on in society right now? What's going on in Western thought and culture and life the idea of 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 building the kind of habits and understandings and interconnect a kind of interconnected understanding that makes you a good citizen is the idea of the liberal arts it makes you a good person in that community that role and that idea involves the idea of a certain at least somewhat determinate idea of what it is to be a good community, right? And of course, what it is to be a good person and that you don't have right now. You don't have that. That's why most of my students, I'd say most, they, they if, if they ever do, it is extremely difficult to understand why they would ever have to take a philosophy philosophy class like what is the point of this because they're thinking like philosophy has to be useful like the most important things are immediately useful now i actually think philosophy is the most useful because it answers the most fundamental questions look look if you can't answer the most fundamental questions about your nature and existence and purpose then then the rest is i mean the rest lays on top of that i mean what you're going to think about the rest of it is going to be determined to some degree by that. And if you can't, and that's what makes the bottom questions about the existence of God and the meaning of life and all that stuff, the most important sort of question there is, 
right? And if you can't, if you if you don't want to learn how to think carefully about that, then what are you saying about yourself? And I'm not blaming people in this necessarily. How, how, I'm just how saying. Does, how does philosophy help us understand this? I think this is good. Well, well first how, of all, how does philosophy you I... help you think about that well? Like the, there's something it does. It sharpens you, right? When it's done right, when it's done well. Well, there's several things you do in philosophy. One is it energizes what I think is a, the, one of the most fundamental qualities a person can have, one of the most fundamental virtues you can have, and that's the love of truth. Now, certain philosophical schools and approaches actually undermine that. But we're, I'm, I, now we're talking, let's just stipulate that we're talking about philosophy in the way I defined it earlier, thinking carefully about the things that matter most. Fair enough. That's the dominant. So, I think that's the dominant sense in history. Yeah, I, that's right. Uh, so, so doing like actually doing that, you, you, you see that it's hard and there's something about doing something difficult that in a, in a way makes you want it more because you, you can, especially if you teach a student in a way that gives them little victories, right? Uh, they start to see that they have they have an ability to discover things and see it so clearly. They're, they, they're like, I did, I, they believe that they see it and that they know it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times students said to me, I see it now. Like I didn't see that before and I see it now, or it made me see the world in a way I didn't. And they're not just saying, you know, I like chocolate instead of vanilla. They're saying, I see things there that I never saw before. To me, that is the purpose. I mean, any educate education in general is about seeing right? Habitually seeing the world uh, for what it is and in the way it is. But of course, we're talking now about the questions that matter most. So how does it do that? It helps you see in a certain way by, by teaching you a, a kind of uh, love for truth, an intellectual humility, a patience with something, mm -hmm. right? You don't just judge it immediately. You, you try to be careful to see it clearly, and not make assumptions, see how it's connected to something else. Doesn't this presume you see, that you have a you lot of time? You discriminate. Well, how do no, people, how do people, I mean, I do this. How do people get the time to do this? I don't know. I do it in the shower. <laughs> so, but well, any time. But, but, we, but to be, we are talking about someone who give his whole life to this. So you make time. Well, look, my, my daughters have, they have piano and they have other things in their schoolwork and stuff, but you, it doesn't take lots of time. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a, sure. You should devote energy and time to it. You ought to, I mean, look, there, are, there, whenever you do something, I mean, this is a kind of a, a, a cliche, but when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else, right? It's how you use your time as a trade-off. Well, then, what are, what are the more important things to use your time for? So use what time you can for this. Uh, thinking, reading, talking to people. Do you uh, mind if I ask you, you a few? You don't need a lot of time. You can, I mean, you can think of, I, you can yeah, think, you can have little discussions. I mean, it just takes a little discussion if you have, sometimes. If you, if you the have world. the right mentor, I would say yeah. if you have the right mentor, 
then you save, really important. you save a lot of time because there are people that waste years of their life. Do you mind if I ask you a, a few rapid fire questions? I'll um, try to give rapid fire answers. Is that the kind yeah, of Yeah, like yes or no okay. kind of stuff? Yeah, sure. Just, I've, I have never done this. I want to try this. Uh, All right. Some people do this. Uh, do you believe in the Trinity? Yes. Do you believe Jesus was God? Yes. And it is. Is God. Okay. Do you believe that the Second Amendment is uh, an important amendment to the Constitution? Yes. Do you believe that uh, there's life after death? Yes. You're doing pretty good, man. You're doing pretty good. Okay, this is the this is the one I really wanted to ask you. And you can embellish on this one. <laughs> um, I've, I've been wanting to ask you this question for about an hour. <laughs> um, my question is, do you believe that there are demonic impulses in the history of philosophy or demonic movements in the history of philosophy? I think there are demonic movements in in every area of human life. And so that includes philosophy. Yes. I think, I think there are certain uh, ideas that if they weren't produced by demons, they're certainly useful to demons because demons have purposes too. They want people to go to hell and they want to destroy everything that God loves and has said is good. And whatever they can use to do that, whatever they can use, even good people, well-meaning people, they will do that. The flip side of that coin is, do you believe that there are movements in the history of philosophy that have been used by God and are angelic? Yeah. For lack yes, of a better term. Okay. Yes. And of course, there's a broader, I mean, this is, that's entailed by the broad, I think everything is used by God for good. Of course, that sounds, that might sound uh, uh, platitudinous to someone who's, yeah. you know, read eight Romans 828 or something like that, but certainly right. it might be, it might I be mean, that you're asking I mean, specific things that you could identify. Uh, Non-demonic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, this to just get to get personal yeah yeah i i i'm i'm i pray before i teach i pray that everything i say will lead them to even if i'm teaching on marxism or whatever i happen to be teaching on or if i'm teaching something that's a bit arcane or you know whatever i'm i just pray that whatever i say leads them closer to the most important truths and the most important one is the truth about god and whatever and whatever i say that doesn't do that that somehow god would like diminish or wipe it from their memory because we because i feel like i have a really uh serious responsibility and i and i'm a, i'm actually a fearful of that sometimes because i would never want to say something that would take somebody away from the truth of what's most important and I bet I'm sure I have. I mean, I just I don't I don't doubt that I've not been you know. Do you I've think not thought about? Yeah. Do you think that that's the point of a good philosophy professor to to help 
students see the demonic in the history of philosophy and and point them toward the I don't the movements and the the positions that are true. I mean, I think I think I'm you ought art. to get. I think you ought to help students see what is true and what is false and what is evil and what is good to see it to recognize it as such. That's I think very important. I think that's central. The way in which you do that will have to differ depending on who you're, what kind of students you have. Um, can, can you I give an example of, of a demonic movement in, in the history of philosophy? I think, uh, sure, people are going to be angry at me, but that's nothing new. I think existentialism is at the root of, um, of most of the bad things that we can, and a kind of a kind of existentialism that is what you might call anti-essentialist that just dismisses the idea that there are natures and that there are uh, real values okay. and basically says the only, the only value is self-determination and self-fulfillment. Do you include Kierkegaard in that? No, I, I, I feel like I've taught a little bit about Kierkegaard. I feel like I don't understand Kierkegaard in general well enough to speak intelligently about Kierkegaard, but I do understand his, you know, three stage uh, dialectic. That's what I mostly taught on. And I, and I think he has some really good ideas. Uh, if I, I think he, I think the general, there's some really, there's something really important about the kind of, existentialism that takes particularity as as fundamentally important and part, the particular person like not not like that that moves away from abstractness and says you are a unique being and your your uniqueness needs to be taken into account philosophically but i don't think kierkegaard was the first one that said that i think augustine was like i mean look at the way augustine writes he writes as a a narrative of his life Right, the confessions is a lot of it is a narrative. Right, right. To, to, in my view, that the the first Christian Christian existentialist was Augustine, not Kierkegaard. That kind of existentialism, because it takes particularity as a philosophical topic. You know, gotcha. but um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, uh, Kierkegaard did that. I think it's important. Uh, is there a helpful book? That but you if you could, if you uh, dismiss you if you dismiss the idea of general knowledge, abstract knowledge, that's a mistake. Why would you? I mean, things things are particular, but they have natures. There's universality to things. That's is, really important. That's not there, unimportant. Is there a particular book on existentialism that you think gets it right for the most part? That what that's helpful. I would start with the Confessions. <laughs> okay. Secondary source? Uh, I can't think of one. Okay. You know, I've, I've, uh, no, I'm the that's, confessions is not a bad place to start. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's pretty, that's pretty solid. I'm not a very, I, I, this is, maybe I should be embarrassed about this, but I, I, uh, like, I often read primary source. Stuff to be embarrassed about. Don't really don't, but you know, 
scholars should be aware of secondary source stuff and then stuff I want to be a scholar about. I, I do read secondary sources, but if I want to know about Kierkegaard, I might read some background, but I really would just like to read Kierkegaard and make, you know, have some guardrails of background stuff, but I won't read a lot of. So I, for stuff, I, I, it's not part of my area of specialty. I haven't, I feel like I, maybe I don't read enough, but I just haven't read a lot of secondary source stuff. I'd rather just read, I'd rather read, if I want to understand Marx, I would like to read Marx. If I want to understand Hegel, I've tried to read Hegel and that's really difficult. I had to stick more to secondary stuff. <laughs> how, how do you, how do you uh, find if you're, if you're uh, interested in getting into philosophy at, uh, putting your big toe in it and you want to avoid the demonic and you want to uh, cling to what is good, but would, you don't know where to start. How do you find a mentor that would help you point you in the right direction? No, I, I feel like I'm not a very good person to ask. I've asked for mentors. I've prayed for mentors. And for some reason, God and his providence has withheld that from me. I feel like I haven't had many. I've wanted them very much. And I still want. You don't I mean, think I'm, Stump was? She was in some ways, philosophically and professionally, and as a person in some way. Uh, so, but in a sense, I didn't seek her out. She, yeah, you know, she fell in your lap. Um, but of. I have sought out mentors. Yeah, and I've I've formed rapports with people that I really respect a lot. You know, I remember at Biola. I remember we used to go out to breakfast with uh, Doug Guyvet. I enjoyed that so much. And I, I learned a lot just by having conversations from him. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, don't be afraid to ask, pray. If you are a praying person, pray for those, pray for the good things that you want to need always. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and seek I think you, I've sought out mentorship. I think everybody should do that. I think that that to me is one of the most, if you, if you reflect on it, one of the best things that you could do in life, find yes, someone who's wise and good and learn from them. Find a mentor. Yeah. Um, Dr. Clark, um, we thank you for your time and your energy and your thoughts and your expertise. Um, we wonder, do you have hope for the future? I yeah, I do. I I have uh, so like for the for the future of this country or this world. I mean, I I believe the what the book of uh, the apocalypse or also called Revelation says is true. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's not very pretty. Um, but depends on which chapter. Ultimate good, yeah. But ultimate good comes comes about. So, I mean, I I think what what is the great source of joy, not fleeting happiness, but what is a deep, great, and and abiding source of joy for me is knowing that things will be put to right. Yeah. When and how I don't know. I think I think things can be put to right right now in our families mm -hmm. and in our communities. I think we need to. I think the idea. The idea we should have in our mind and the aim is to build culture, even if it's like enclaves in the midst of stuff that's falling apart. We need to build culture and it starts in our families, in our homes. Uh, a, a, a father or a, a wife, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a husband or wife 
a father and a mother need to have the virtue of their children as their primary aim as parents the virtue of the home and the virtue of their children and 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 not and one virtue in particular that i keep think about a lot is the virtue of courage to stand up for what is right to do it intelligently and to build Mm -hmm. we can build you can if you have knowledge and understanding you can build right yeah courage that's a big one for me that's a that's a that's the key thing i think what are the names of your children do you want to say give them a shout out sure i have a picture this is kind of taken uh a while ago, a couple of years ago, and it's kind of there. We go. So the oldest is Zion Dara. We call her Iana. The yeah, second, some, of them, some is, of them have dark skin. Yeah, they have dark skin. Oh, here's my my wife. Is uh, Brazilian and she's got dark skin. Dark skin. Yeah. yeah. So we call ourselves a Mexican hot chocolate kind of a mixture. <laughs> um. So uh, she's not Mexican. Maybe it should be a Brazilian hot chocolate. They don't really have a lot. <laughs> Um, so there's, it's a funny, cause the race question, we, uh, we joke about the whole idea of race in our, at the dinner table about this. Like, what race are you like? What kind it of looks a question, like an what question is what, you know, <laughs> right what, after Brown, the, the, the word race just falls apart in my family. Um, yeah. so there's Eon Dara. The second is Kalia. Then that, then my first boy, that's Elias, call him Eli. And then uh, second boy, he's now seven. That's Isaac. And then that's Mary Grace. She's now five. She was probably three or two in this. And then that's Ezra. Wow. Beautiful family, man. They're, Congratulations. They're awesome. That's yeah. so cool. Very, that's awesome. They're going to hopefully enjoy having this shout and out on and this, this really long interview kids. of your dad. Their dad. I'm actually very proud of them. They're very good hearted. I mean, they look good hard. I know I, I, all parents feel that way, but man, my, they're, they're smart. They teach me things. They're, they're good. I mean, they'll correct me about like, dad, you don't want to talk that way or you don't want to act that way or, you know, but in a way that's, you, they care about being good and they have a, there's a joy about it too. Like they want, they want to know truth. They want to be good. They'll, I mean, we go in the, the sounds this, I know this will sound weird to a lot of people. We go in Target or something like that. They won't look at the pic- pictures on magazines. They will they will cover their eyes or turn their heads. And I and I think like who does that? And it's not because I tell them to do that. I don't. I don't think I've ever told them to do that. They just do that because we they know about the virtue of modesty and purity. And and I and I'm not I'm not not trying to brag or anything. I'm just saying I. It just makes me feel good that they've internalized this. Like when they're out and they're not even with me. Like at school, I remember some teacher was uh, had something on YouTube and something somewhat filthy came up or something. That's not doesn't happen very often, does it? Anyways, but I remember, you know, it's out there. They had like-minded friends, and everybody just they wouldn't even give it a second. They instantly just was like this and. Wow. We need to build strong people. We need to have strong families yeah. and build and be courageous about it and and single-minded about it, I think. Well, let me summarize what I've seen from you in this time. And I know you, so I'm biased, but what I've seen from you this time is that um your PhD, 
your professional life has has taught you some things that are disappointing to hear and experience. Uh, there's hope. You're not in despair, but but uh, your PhD was a key formative experience that was used of the Lord to help you discern truth from falsehood, ugliness from beauty, goodness from evil, and to help other people see that, which is tremendously valuable. And so I'm going to pray for you right now, Lord. Okay. We, we ask and we call on you to provide Aaron and his beautiful family wonderful, wonderful sources of income that would sustain them in abundance for their natural lives and the lives of their kids. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Lucas. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you so much Absolute for inviting brother. And I Well, I really am grateful to be here and I'm so glad you invited me. I've enjoyed our conversation every second of it and I've enjoyed seeing all the good things you're doing and I'm glad this podcast seems to be successful uh, and gaining traction and gaining uh, awareness. And I, I, I pray for you and I pray for it. And I, I, I wish you the best and your, and you. have too. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, we, we so far are, are not losing any listeners that <laughs> we're only gaining as far as we can tell, but um, it has been uh, an arduous journey to say the least. But it's worth it. Can you can you tell me a little bit about it? There's something I've had in the back of my mind. It's not ready yet, but I'm learning. I've won money by writing grant proposals, and uh, I'm st- still learning how to do that. I'm learning how to do it better. And I've thought of I've thought of the Republican professor in that regard. I'm not saying I can do anything right now, but I would love to hear. I would love to have another conversation with you sometime about. Sure what you've tried and what you're looking for and what you need. I'd be happy to have that conversation with you. Okay. We'll sign off, Aaron. It's been great. All right. Do I need an official sign off or is this i uh, I'm just going to say are we goodbye. Re- are we re- recording?